Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Ibis' brother used to sing this when he came in from the tobacco fields. Mama, is Massa gonna sell us tomorrow? Yes, yes, yes. Mama, is Massa gonna sell us tomorrow? Yes, yes, yes. Robert Smalls became a Union hero when he stole a Confederate steamer during the Civil War. Smalls had been enslaved and was determined to find freedom for himself and his family. So in May of 1862, he decided to steal a steamer from the Charleston Harbor and take it to the Union fleet outside the city. After his escape, Smalls piloted more ships for the Union, and he became a public speaker across the North. After the war, he moved back with his family to his hometown of Beaufort, South Carolina. And there he became a business owner and eventually a U.S. congressman. Robert Small's story is detailed in a new book. It is called Be Free or Die, The Amazing Story of Robert Small's Escape from Slavery to Union Hero. And joining me now is Kate Lineberry. She's the author of the book, and she speaks tonight at Quail Ridge Books in Raleigh. Welcome back, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell us more about Robert Small's. Take us to the beginning uh, and, and tell us how he gets started. Well, it's just an incredible story um, from the get-go. He um, is born in 1839 in Beaufort, um, his mother was a house uh, slave for the McKee family, and so he grew up uh, in a very um, unique position in the fact that she had been taken from the plantation as a child, um, was familiar with Gullah, which is a local uh, Creole language that they speak, but he was also in the house growing up and was aware of um, a lot of things around him that a lot of slaves were not privy to. So he had a very unique upbringing, um, but he was a house servant. They lived behind the large house. 
And when he was 12 years old, his owner, Henry McKee, decided that it would be best for Smalls to move to Charleston, which um, there he would hire him out for services. It was a very common practice at the time. Obviously, everything that Smalls earned, that money went to McKee. And he's he's rented out, He's but he's 12 years old in Charleston, more or less on his own. Correct. Right. right. Um, McKee's sister-in-law, Eliza Ancrum, is um, supervising Smalls, um, I, I guess you could say. and uh, But he is really left on his own. And uh, remarkably, this young 12-year-old boy who has grown up in a very small town comes to the big city of Charleston, um, seeing a lot of um, – he had already seen a lot as a child um, regarding slavery, but he was seeing a lot in Charleston – in terms of people being auctioned off regularly, um, quite a bit of brutality, and he suddenly on his own to find jobs. And he did. He successfully became a lamplighter. He became a waiter for a while, um, and eventually he became a deckhand. And tell us more. And his his mother, I mean, interestingly enough, going back to the McKee family and her uh, ability to work inside the house and have that unique situation had some small influence on where he was going to go, right? She, yes. Uh, Lydia Polite, his mother, was very protective of Robert. And in fact, she knew that being born into slavery, he had very little um, control over his life. So she wanted to raise him to expect... Um, whatever came his way. And so as a young boy, he, she did take him to slave auctions in Beaufort. Um, she took him to see a slave being punished, being whipped. And so um, when she learned that um, McKee was moving um, from one house in Beaufort to another, and for a lot of uh, reasons, um, she petitioned uh, McKee to let him go to Charleston. And I believe that Lydia thought uh, her son would have a lot more opportunities there. And he did. And as you say, he it was eye-opening for him. And he began to develop a thirst for his own freedom uh, and also an eye for the many opportunities, even though all the money was going back to the master, uh, he could see the many options and opportunities he had. Absolutely. I mean, Robert Smalls was an incredibly resourceful, brilliant guy. And uh, from the get-go, he was looking for ways to um, ensure his own freedom. He married at 17, a much older woman who was in her 30s, and uh, they eventually had two children. His greatest fear at that point was for them to be separated, which frequently happened for enslaved families. Uh, so at that point, um, with children... Uh, in his care, he started looking for a way to escape. He could earn some money and maybe buy their freedom, but that still wouldn't free him, and he understood that that would separate the family. Correct. I mean, he had a very interesting deal that he made with Hannah, his wife's owner. Um, he was owned by Henry McKee. She was owned by Samuel Kingman, and he actually had arranged to buy um, his first child, his daughter, and his wife for $800, which is a remarkable amount for anyone back then, but particularly for a slave. Um, he was earning money by doing extra jobs, and eventually um, McKee allowed him to keep uh, $1 out of the 16 he made per month. Of course, you know, you're looking at a long time to uh, end up um, saving six, uh, $800, so he was doing other odd jobs as well. Um, but he still was worried that at any moment his family could be sold and he would never see them again. It was a very real possibility. So he did a lot of jobs, but but dock work was something that he kept coming back to. So tell us about his experience now on the docks in Charleston. Yeah, so he started as a deckhand. He was always drawn to the water. Um, he got McKee's permission to start working as a deckhand, and he joined the crew of the planter, which was a sidewheel steamer in Charleston. Uh, once the war broke out, uh, the steamer was being leased for the Confederacy or to the Confederacy. 
And uh, he was in charge of um, he was actually acting as the wheelman, um, which is another way of saying pilot. Um, but the Confederates would not give him that title because he was a slave. But he was very skilled on the water and they wanted to take advantage of that. Um, so he gained their trust and uh, he was working with the other enslaved men on the ship on a day-to-day basis. So tell us about the moment that a, a moment arrives when they begin impersonating. They're, they're sort of having a little celebration because the crew would occasionally leave and, and the, the other sailors, uh, he and other enslaved men, would stay on board. And there's one moment in which everybody realizes, you know, you look a bit like the captain yourself. (laughs) Yes, it was a very unique situation in that the captain, who was relatively new to the ship, um, wore a wide-brimmed straw hat. And one day the crew was joking. I'm sure it was when the white uh, officers were not around. And one put the hat on Smalls, and they joked that he looked like him because both Smalls and the captain were very stocky. Um, That, a light bulb went off for Smalls at at that moment, and he started thinking, you know what, maybe I could impersonate the captain and get this ship out of this harbor. It was an extraordinary idea. It was dangerous, but it was brilliant. And and as you say, dangerous. So tell us about the idea. This may be the germ of the idea. Tell us how it unfolded. And again, he's got to bring people into his confidence because he can't do it alone. Right. And a lot of these, uh, the men on the crew uh, were friends of his. But, you know, in order to talk about escaping at all was a very dangerous uh thing to do in Confederate Charleston. But he had no choice. He knew he couldn't operate the steamer by himself. Um, There was also no way of um, getting his family on board without letting the the crew know. So he decided he needed to take them into his his secret and talked about the escape. so it was it was a remarkable thing. He did tell his wife um, when he started thinking about it. He wanted Hannah to be on board with it, and she was. Uh, she knew that she did not, neither one of them wanted either of their children to grow up as slaves. And they knew that they had an opportunity because the crew would occasionally uh, counter the orders of the Confederate Army or the Confederate High Command leave the ship uh, to go out and have perhaps a taste of the local libation. Exactly. So they, yeah, the, the it was against Confederate orders for uh, the crew, the white officers, to leave the ship at any time. But they did do that. They wanted to spend time with their families in town. And um, they trusted, they either trusted the crew or um, also factoring into that was the idea that they didn't think the crew was yeah. smart enough to steal the ship. Um, and, of course, they showed them. Yeah, and, and, and again, the, the combination of not thinking they're smart enough, state-sponsored terrorism, they're too scared, nobody's going to get away with this. That The germ of the idea then is planted. This is, this is possible. It is plausible. So now tell us how the plot unfolds when it, when it finally happens, the day that they finally decide to make their escape. Well, so they had all met and agreed that they would um, leave it to, to Robert Smalls to decide when the time was right. Uh, They had been removing guns from one part of uh, Charleston Harbor to another um, on Confederate orders, and they had some of the guns on board the ship. So it now dawns on Robert Smalls that not only could he, because his whole plan was to not only steal the ship and get it out of the harbor, but he was going to take it to the Union fleet that was waiting out there as part of the blockade of all southern ports. So he thought, now I can not only deliver this steamship, gain my freedom, but I'm also be giving going to be giving the Union these guns that are desperately needed. Um, so that night, the guns are on board. He gives the signal to his crew that they're going to do it. 
Um, they if, get the families. They get the, they have to have families on other uh, other boats and other places. So they they do, and they had been pro- practicing for that by having them come down every night and inviting them. And so it was not unheard of, even though the other family members did not know exactly what they were getting into other than Hannah. They had them come to the ship that night. Um, suddenly they were wondering why they weren't being allowed to leave. The other women and children, the slave curfew was about to be announced. They could be in trouble. And that's when Smalls told them, you're not leaving. We're actually escaping tonight. It must have been a terrifying moment for all of them. And the the actual time of their departure was critical. They, they couldn't go too late and they couldn't go too early. Right? Absolutely. I mean, if they went too late at night, um, someone would think it was very odd that the ship was operating at that time of day. If they went too early, it would be more likely that someone one would see that these there were no white crew members on board the ship. That would never happen. So they timed it just um, so when they were reaching Fort Sumter, it would be a little bit light out. Um, it wouldn't be unusual for the ship to be there, but they had a small chance of actually having this happen as successfully. And we're talking about having to get past Fort Sumter, a highly fortified uh, a, a fortification on a hair trigger, there is a Union blockade not far away. So getting past this gauntlet is not easy. Talk about the dangers of this and how they did it. Yeah, it was actually inconceivable that they actually did it in many ways. There were several fortifications within Charleston Harbor as well as batteries surrounding the harbor. Um, if anyone were to suspect that slaves were stealing a ship, they would have immediately attacked. Um, so it was very prudent of them that they continued to make their way through the harbor without anyone realizing uh, what they were doing. Um, It was, I I can't imagine what they went through while they were making those. It was only 10 miles, but it was, I'm sure, an excruciating 10-mile trip. as you point out in your book, they had to know the codes because they were not going to let any ship pass through without lots of signaling and lots of communication to their Confederate uh, guards. Exactly. And even as Smalls passed Fort Sumter, he had to give a certain code that he knew from reconnaissance trips that they had taken out in the planner. He did that. Um, The guy on duty said, um, you know, have a great time, uh, good luck, and small state and character, um, and waited. I mean, they all sat there patiently waiting to see if they were going to figure out if the Confederates were going to shoot or not. Right. It's one thing to ask approval. Then you have to actually wait for permission. And in that moment on board must have been, I can't imagine how excruciating that fear must have been. Absolutely. And once they turned away from the uh, the way that they normally would have gone, that's when the Confederates realized, hey, something's up. Uh, yeah, they're for- going toward the gunfire. They're going toward the Union uh, blockade. Exactly, instead of away from, instead it. Of away from yeah. it. And so um, the the Smalls luckily um, makes that happen. He successfully gets past Fort Sumter, but he has a huge uh, uh He's got another problem, right? He does. He's got another problem because, okay, I just got past the Confederates. I now am flying a Confederate flag, and I'm headed toward the Union Navy. Absolutely. (laughs) It was was more danger. He was more worried about the danger from the Union fleet than he was Mm. from the Confederates. So he figures that out. Tell us how he did that, and then the greeting finally from the Union. Union Yeah, well, he was smart enough to know that they would immediately have to signal. They took down the Confederate flag, the South Carolina state flag, and they um, hoisted a white bedsheet as a flag. Uh, But the Union officer on board the Onward, which was the ship they were approaching, did not see it at at first. Uh, He got all his men ready to fire. The guns were up, ready to go, and at the last second he saw the white bedsheet and told them not to fire. So it was a very, very close call. Ultimately, he was received and a hero. He delivered both a ship and some weapons. Absolutely. And was suddenly uh, the talk of the country.
Um, I've got to get to Nebraska more. I, <laughs> you're welcome. We'd love to have you work in the fields with us. Work in the fields? That's part of that. That's... Senator, I'm a house nigga. No, it's... If you search the hashtag van life in Instagram or Facebook, you will see photographs of people who said no to mortgages and yes to four-wheeled freedom. These van lifers post from beaches and national parks. They take pictures of their feet wading in cool water. We know it's cool water. Their little kitchens, their dogs, all to prove how great van life can be and leaving many people with escape envy. But my next guest says you shouldn't let social media make you feel bad about your life. In fact, he has studied millions of Google searches and gained some surprising insights into people's real lives. Seth Stevens-Davidowitz is a former Google data scientist. He's a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times, and he's the author of Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. And Seth Stevens-Davidowitz is joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Why shouldn't we let social media make us feel bad about our lives? Well, I think uh, social media gives a very curated and false impression of who people are. The data of people's lives on social media doesn't match up uh, with the real world data, uh, that people tend to exaggerate how happy they are, how wealthy they are, how intellectual they are, how good their relationships are, how strong and connected their family is. Uh, And if you just think that images you see on social media are real, uh, you'll feel very depressed about uh, how your life compares. So they are lying on social media. Uh, I don't know if it's directly lying or, or just exaggerating. Uh, Sin of omission, <laughs> yeah. So one example is if you compare the magazines, the National Enquirer, which is a trashy, gossipy magazine, and the Atlantic Monthly, which is an intellectual magazine, uh, the National Enquirer actually sells more copies every year. But the Atlantic Monthly is 45 times more popular on social media because people want their friends to think they're very, very intellectual. Uh, They don't want to tell their friends that they're reading the National Enquirer. Good example. Um, So you got all this information through Google searches, am I right? A lot of – yes. A lot of what I talk about in the book is uh, the truth in Google search data. So I think that's one source uh, where people are really, really honest and they're not putting up a front. Uh, They're not trying to impress anybody. They're just – looking for information, and you get a very different perspective on who people are, and I think a more accurate and honest perspective of who people are. And so how much do they reveal about themselves in their Google searches? Uh, A lot. Uh, So there are more searches every year uh, for porn than weather, although only about uh, 25% of men and 8% of women say that they watch porn. Uh, So it's a very different perspective on uh, human beings than you see in in other sources. How does the data that you look at differ from traditional ways of surveying or polling people? Well, it's it's less structured. It's not as organized. Usually we think of data as very, very structured based on survey answers. So people check boxes or they put in numbers on surveys. Uh, Google searches is just people in their everyday lives, uh, words, the words they put in that search engine. So it's a little uh, harder to make sense of. But on the other hand, it's much more honest and revealing. Uh, and I think basically revolutionary in the information it can tell us about who people are. And I want to know more about um, the things you uncovered. But before we do that, so what, what were you actually looking at? Were you, like, are you looking at um, aggregate data or you actually have – what did you have access no, it's, to? it's definitely just anonymous and aggregate data. So I don't know what any particular person searches. I just know what people in a city search for or people in a certain time period search for. 
Is this information that Google has that you got, or did you go on Google and figure it out? This is data that they, they aggregate the search data and right. give it okay. to researchers. Okay. Um, so what did you learn about racism in the U.S. by examining Internet searches? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so there is a disturbing element to some of this research. It, when people are uh, lying, one of the ways people lie is they make themselves look better and they don't admit their racist tendencies. Uh, so the comparison on Google is depressing, even horrifying, uh, the frequency with which Americans make racist searches are predominantly looking for jokes mocking African-Americans. I'm a house nigger. Uh, and these searches predict very, very strongly uh, various political behaviors, voting patterns. You can make the connection. Yeah. So, for example, places that made these searches in highest numbers that, that were most likely to make racist searches uh, were there's a almost perfect relationship between the volume of these searches and support for Donald Trump in the Republican primary. So it's really clear in this data that racism played a huge role in Trump's rise, even if people wouldn't admit that. Um, and, and you also looked at uh, what people were searching for right after Barack Obama was elected in 2008. What did you find? Yeah. Uh, I mean, another one where people, you know, on the t on TV or uh, in everyday conversation, people were saying how wh whatever they thought of Obama's uh, policies or positions, that it was moving that we had an African-American president. But you see at the same period that uh, searches for uh, really, really racially charged jokes mocking African-Americans were rising to their highest levels yet. And one in 100 searches on the night that Obama was elected uh, with the word Obama also included uh, the N-word or KKK. Damn you, Obama. Uh, so really a very, very different uh, – in the privacy of their own homes, uh, Americans were reacting to this event much differently than they – were publicly proclaiming they were reacting. And that was uh, rather than using the phraseology like first black president or the like celebratory phraseology. Yeah, exactly. Very few people are making more people are making searches uh, kind of disturbed by having an African-American president than excited about having an African-American president. And so let's get back to what you said about the election of Donald Trump and, and what you learned about who voted for him. Tell me a little bit more of what you saw. Well, I think uh, well, one thing that happened is you see how people responded when Obama was president. So the racist searches, people were also searching for and eventually joining a website called Stormfront, which is a white nationalist website. And you see kind of a direct relationship that these people who were antagonized by Obama's election and motivated uh, to join these white nationalist websites or make racist searches then put Trump over the edge uh, in the Republican primary. And how do you know that you're making the right uh, conclusion with that data? Well, yeah, yeah, you have to be definitely careful when you're using statistics and data. But uh, there are a lot of tools that data scientists have to control for other variables. So you can see, is there something else about these areas that explains the relationship? Is it because these areas have more elderly people or more people with fewer years of education or more people who own guns or more people who attend church and you control for all these variables and nothing explains the result. The only thing that really explains the result is the racism. It's not, it's racism. not racism. Okay. Well, this is Humboldt Last Week and I'm joined by North Coast Journal editor Thaddeus Greenson. Thanks for your time, Thad. Thanks for having me, Wells. Of course. So right now we're discussing the tragic stabbing death of 19-year-old HSU student David Josiah Lawson at a house party back in April. 23-year-old Kyle Zollner of McKinleyville was arrested for murder, and then a judge ruled there was not enough evidence to take his case to trial, and his charges went away. 
Now at least over 30 grand is available for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Josiah's killer. There were a number of fights that broke out at this party, possibly over a missing cell phone. And people can't seem to agree on a lot of things. They can't agree if racism played a role in the stabbing. Witnesses say there were people of color and white people in confrontations. Also, people can't agree on how these fights started, when and why mace was used, the words that were exchanged, whether or not someone was using the N-word, whether or not Kyle had a knife, and finally, whether or not Kyle was even conscious at the time of the stabbing. Some witness testimony indicated Kyle was beaten up by a few guys before Josiah was stabbed. Now, Kyle's family has been trying to pressure the cops and DA's office to press assault charges against those young men who they say hit Kyle. He's friends of Josiah's. Thad, in your coverage for the journal last week, you interviewed a law professor about how these additional assault charges against Josiah's friends would impact obtaining justice for Josiah. There were a couple of ways that could go. Is that right? Yeah, I, I interviewed uh, University of California Hastings professor David Levine, um, and he explained just that um, none of these things can really be seen in a vacuum, and they all kind of have to be taken in the greater context of everything that happened at this party and ultimately the, the homicide that resulted in, uh, in Josiah Lawson's death. And so any decision that prosecutors or police make regarding other lesser offenses, assault charges and stuff like that um, related to the people that were there that night could impact ultimately their ability to successfully charge and prosecute whoever actually killed Josiah Lawson. I guess more specifically, he said, you know, there's a couple different strategies prosecutors could use in this case. And, and one would just be to sit back and make no charging decisions until they decide or until if and when they decide who they think is culpable for Lawson's death and charge that person. Um, and the other school of thought kind of is that they could try to file charges against everybody that they feel like they have evidence against of that they committed an offense, whether it be assault or something else and then try to leverage those charges into maybe more honest testimony um, or, or more honest statements about what happened that night. So basically one way you sit and wait and try to gather as much information as possible and then go, and then in the second way you basically um, file any charges you can right away to try to bring up more testimony. Is that right? Exactly. So you would say that we don't know who killed uh, Lawson, but we feel like we know that these people committed assault. And so we're going to charge them with assault, and then we'll use those charges to kind of exert pressure on those people to try to get them to maybe offer more honest testimony or more honest statements about what they saw and what they heard that night. And it's a bit of a conundrum, right? Because if you do go that route, it could impact the ability to convict Josiah's killer. Is that right? Um, absolutely. You know, there's definitely a, a potential self-defense argument. If Zollner is, is recharged in the case, which he can be, um, obviously he was involved in, in some confrontations that night. And, um, you know, from just looking at his mugshot, you can tell he was, he was beaten up pretty badly. And so if they were to, you know, pursue assault charges against people who they feel like may have caused those injuries to Zollner, you know, but yet they ultimately decide that Zollner maybe committed the stabbing or they feel like he did, um, those assault charges that they've already filed could kind of buttress a self-defense case or argument uh, for Zollner. And so it's, it's kind of a, a tricky situation for them to, to navigate. Yeah, there are no easy answers here. So Kyle Zollner's uncle, Jay, he read your article, and I asked him what his thoughts were. I'll read what he said. I'm not going to mention specific names, but he said, quote, 
I think the article was well written and the professor's points are spot on. What I see happening uh, is that outside investigators will be able to bring in a new direction to this investigation in a few weeks without the racial pressure the Arcata Police Department has had. This new path will include arresting those that assaulted Kyle. Once they do this, I believe the truth will come out quickly if it's handled correctly. This is what we've wanted for quite a while, and in reality, I believe what we want is also what Josiah's family wants, the person who murdered Josiah brought to justice. Thad, uh, what are your thoughts on that response? Well, I, I would say a couple of things. I mean, first, um, at least from, from my conversations with Arcata Police Chief Tom Chapman, the outside investigators that are coming in aren't coming in to take over the investigation or even really participate in it. They're coming to kind of review the case files um, and review the, the investigative processes that Arcata Police Department has gone through and offer suggestions and advice. Maybe point out things that APD could have missed or things that they could do differently or strategies kind of moving forward. So ultimately, it's going to be the Arcata Police Department and the Humboldt County DA's office that makes these decisions as far as who's charged with what and when. So it's not as though somebody's going to come in in a vacuum, not susceptible to the racial tensions at play in this case. And the other thing I would say is as far as, you know, his belief that this will lead to assault charges, even aside from kind of all the um, strategy questions that we just talked about, I think just from preliminary hearing testimony that I saw, I don't know that you have enough consistency in statements to pursue or prove an assault charge against anybody involved, really, unless there's statements and evidence that we haven't seen. Because as you alluded to earlier, just the testimony in this case was, was kind of all over the place and much of it in conflict with each other. And like you had said, it's up to the Arcata Police Department and District Attorney's Office, Maggie Fleming's office, to ultimately decide on that. In your article, you also mentioned Kyle could be tried again if new evidence comes to light. That's something a lot of us knew, but uh, maybe it was a misconception out there, people thinking double jeopardy applied in this case? Yeah, I think that was a, certainly a misconception that was out there, at least directly in the aftermath of the charges being dismissed against him. But in California anyway, I mean, double jeopardy only applies once a case goes to jury. Um, and so this case was, you know, was dismissed at an evidentiary hearing level. So there's nothing preventing prosecutors from filing the exact same charges against uh, Kyle Zollner again in the future if they feel like there's evidence to prove them and then moving forward. All right. Well, Thad, thank you so much for your analysis here. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? No, I, I guess I would just say that I think it's, um, as has been widely reported, I mean, it's just a really complicated case. And I think a lot of it will probably hinge on forensic evidence once they get um, full lab results back from the Department of Justice. And that could take some time. So I think it's really hard, but I think everybody involved is probably going to have to exercise some patience and, and just hope that the truth comes out in the end. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your wise words, Thad. Award-winning journalist Thaddeus Greenson of the North Coast Journal. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Al. Thank you. Carry me back to old Virginia. There's where the cotton and the corn and taters grow. People in northern Virginia yesterday mourned Nubra Hassanan. She's the teenager, 17 years old who was beaten to death early Sunday morning as she walked to a mosque. The suspect is named Darwin Martinez-Torres. He's accused of dragging her into his car outside the Fairfax County Mosque, and her body was found in a neighboring county. Police say the case was not a hate crime, but road rage. Her family is not convinced. 
Carmel Del Shad of WAMU attended yesterday's vigil. Nabra Hassanan, a smiling, glasses-wearing teenager who loved rap music, was carried into the mosque in a casket. It was placed at the front of the prayer hall at the Al Dulles Area Muslim Society, also known as Adams. Imam Muhammad Majid began his sermon with a confession. This is one of the most difficult funeral I've ever presided over. She was so generous, so bright, so beautiful, so energetic, so giving, so caring. Across the mosque, men, women, and children gathered to watch the imam's message and pray for Nabra. Women sobbed into each other's arms. Others emerged with red-rimmed eyes and looks of disbelief. They were still trying to make sense of it all. How could a 17-year-old be walking with friends one moment and wind up dead just hours later? That question was also on the minds of many during the vigil for Nubra in Reston, Virginia, later that day. The event was organized by her classmates at South Lakes High School. Everyone was welcome. Miriam Alley brought her five children with her. She attends the Adams Mosque and knows Nubra's mother. We're trying to just understand and live through the moment. It's a very hard time right now for all of us as a community. Ali's 14-year-old daughter, Alam, sees a bit of herself in Nabra. It could have been anybody. Um, we all love and care about each other. We've come here as a community to show our respect and our solidarity for one another. And in that spirit, hundreds of people of all ages and religions packed into a plaza for the vigil, many with flowers in hand. They cried as Nabra's friends spoke of her kindness and generosity. Rosalie Kendall came from Arlington, Virginia, and she brought a sign that read, quote, Nabra Hassanan, say her name. Kendall, like many at the vigil, want Nabra's name to live on, to stand for something more than the victim of a senseless crime. When we talk about victims of violence, especially women of color, we tend to talk about a Muslim woman, a black woman, uh, and we don't talk about them as if they are full people. We talk about them as if they're disposable and interchangeable. The root of the name Nabra in Arabic means to uplift, to ascend, to put on a pulpit. Fittingly, her friends and family released white balloons in the air at the vigil, looking up to the sky and remembering her name, Nabra. When I say Nub, y'all say bruh. Nub, For NPR News, I'm Carmel Dalshad in Washington. So today, though Islam is my religious philosophy, my political, economic, and social philosophy is black nationalism. You and I... As I say, if we bring up religion, we'll have differences, we'll have arguments, we'll never be able to get together. But if we keep our religion at home, keep our religion in the closet, keep our religion between ourselves and our God, but when we come out here, we have a fight that's common to all of us against the enemy who is common to all of us. I'm Marco Werman, and you're with The World. It happened again last night, again in London, again a van driving into people. Here's London Mayor Sadi Khan earlier today. Our police and others are working, their socks are working around the clock. You will see uh, additional visible policing over the course of today and the next few days. Don't be alarmed. They're there to keep us uh, uh, safe. One of the things that these terrorists hate about us is whether you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Sikh, a member of an organized faith or not, rich or poor, old or young, You're accepted for who you are here in London. 
This attack was different from previous ones, though, because it appears to have targeted Muslims. It occurred in an area of London called Finsbury Park. Police believe 47-year-old Darren Osborne drove into a crowd of worshippers leaving a mosque. Ten people were injured. One man died at the scene, but it's unclear if his death was related to the vehicle attack. My BBC colleague Leo Hornack knows very well that part of London where the attack occurred. I actually live in Finsbury Park, pretty close to this, where this all happened. So it's an area that's very familiar to me. And just a couple of hours ago, I, I went back there um, and I spoke to a gentleman called Yassin. He works in a travel agent and he was there. He was one of the eyewitnesses. Here's what he told me, Marco. I was there. Love, injured. A lady, a man's old man, broken arm, legs... We try to help injured people. We try to call the police. Police has been come late, 20 minutes. All the community come and they catch the man. He, he tried to run. I was helping the injured people. A lot of things happened. I was, up to now, I'm, I couldn't sleep. Shock. So that's Yassin. He was an eyewitness to, to this attack. Do we have any idea why this community center seems to have been targeted, Leo? Well, it's a Muslim community centre. That's the obvious immediate motive for someone who is motivated really by religious hatred. But beyond that, it's, it's not making an enormous leap to say that the Finsbury Park Mosque is one of the most famous mosques in Britain. And in the past, many years ago, really, it, it had a certain reputation nationally. There was a famous preacher, extremist preacher called Abu Hamza, who preached at the mosque. This is going back around a decade. Mm. And so it was a place which became featured in tabloids a lot as synonymous, really, with extremism in Britain. Now, it has to be said, Abu Hamza is long gone from there, and the community and the mosque management have been at pains for many years to say that they put that in the past, and it's a very different management and a very different tone that is struck in the mosque today. So when you went to Finsbury Park earlier today, what kind of reactions were you hearing from people you spoke with? Like, what did people you spoke with think had happened last night and why them? I'm afraid to say this, Marco, but there's an air of of resignation almost. Uh, and that goes whether you're Muslim, Sikh, Christian or, or, or none of the above. There's a tradition here of when there's a time of great national tragedy a minute of silence is observed across the whole country. And that's something that used to happen once or twice a year. But we've been having them almost every month, almost every week, it feels like at times. We had a minute silence today to commemorate the victims of the Grenfell Tower fire that I was talking to you about last week, which is completely unconnected to this. It's not a terrorist attack, but it's the same feeling of a nation united in grief. It's almost as though this country and London in particular can't actually keep up with the speed of of horrendous pieces of news that are coming at a pace that no one is really used to. So four terrorism attacks in Britain since March, seemingly all attackers inspired or weaponized by ISIS until this one. This attack would appear to be an attack on Muslims. Where has this taken the mood in London? Well, let me give you a short example as a way of answering that, Marco. At about one in the morning, so about half an hour after this happened, I woke up. I was woken up by the sound of a helicopter circling overhead. And 
my first thought was, I wonder if that's a terrorism attack. That's not the kind of reaction I would normally have to hearing a helicopter in London. And that, speaking to my neighbours around Finsbury Park and speaking to people in the shops really even closer to the attack, that's the same kind of mood. People are disgusted, they're horrified, some are afraid even, but no one felt this was a surprise. Our man in London, Leo Hornack, thanks very much for the update. Thank you, Marco. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. At this hour, at Memorial Chapel on the campus of the University of Maryland, College Park, an interfaith service is being held to remember Richard Collins III. The bus stop in front of Montgomery Hall on the College Park campus also continues to be a place where Collins is remembered with flowers and poems and expressions of grief. An African-American ROTC student at Bowie State University, last month standing at that bus stop, Richard Collins was brutally murdered just days after receiving a commission as a second lieutenant in the Army. His alleged killer, Sean Urbanski, is a white University of Maryland student with ties to an online hate group which calls itself Alt-Reich. This group posted bigoted memes and messages about people of color. While Urbanski has not been charged with a hate crime, students of color at the university say Collins' death is not an isolated incident and that the racial climate on campus is fraught with bias and bigotry. In early May, for example, a noose was found hanging in a University of Maryland frat house. And College Park is by no means the only American college campus battling bigotry. Last month, bananas hung by nooses were found at American University in Washington, D.C. Harvard, Columbia, Dartmouth, and universities across the country have reported dozens of incidents of bias in recent months. Some scholars have observed that racism on predominantly white college campuses is as old as the universities themselves. Today, a conversation about racial tension in higher education. We hope to be joined soon by Lawrence Ross. He's the author of several books. His latest is called Blackballed, The Black and White Politics of Race on America's Campus. Ashley Vasquez is here with me in Studio A. She's a rising senior studying sociology at the University of Maryland. She's a member of the Student Government Association and the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority. Ashley serves as the president of the school's National Pan-Hellenic Council chapter. She's also a member of Protect UMD, a coalition of 25 student organizations representing eight minority communities at 
the University of Maryland. Ashley, it's nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Of course, of course. It's good to be here. And Matt Brown joins us on the line from his home in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Matt graduated from Johns Hopkins University last month with a degree in public health. And while at Johns Hopkins, he was a member of the Student Government Association, and he held several leadership positions within the Black Student Union. In 2015, as president of the BSU, he organized a protest to address issues of discrimination and bias on campus. Matt Brown, welcome to Midday. Thank you for having me. And we are joined now by Lawrence Ross. As I mentioned, he's the author of several books. His latest is called Blackballed, the Black and White Politics of Race on America's Campuses. Mr. Ross, thank you so much for joining us from uh, WVTF Radio over in Roanoke, Virginia. Appreciate your time. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Lawrence Ross, let me start with you. Um, you know, we're told, and, and we, we've been told for almost 10 years now, really, since the election of Barack Obama as the president, that uh, the younger generation in particular, the generation that is in college and coming of age uh, during the time of Mr. Obama's election, uh, is much less bigoted, that racial uh, harmony was right around the corner. There's lots more interracial dating. There's interracial marriage. There's just uh, the, the, the biases and bigotries that were held by this generation's parents were not uh, going to be held, certainly, uh, in as uh, complete a way by the, the generation of young people coming up now, particularly in universities, this place where everybody's enlightened and everybody's uh, educated and, you know, pursuing their education. Um, but your book paints a very different picture of American college campuses. What, what's wrong with the, with the, uh, the narrative that says, you know, you, you, there were even people at, at, in 2008 who trotted out the term post-racial to describe America. Um, yeah. America tends to love to look at college campuses as big as what I call educational Disneylands, where, you know, we have free speech land over there and critical thinking land over there and passed out drunk land, but nobody remembers what happens over there. But, you know, what typically happens is that we don't really realize is that I don't care if your kid is 18 to 21 on the college campus, they're still coming from the United States, they're still coming from America. And we make a mistake oftentimes when we think about, you know, we want to talk about things like being post-racial, which I never bought into in the first place. But we want to make these these kind of pronouncements due to the fact that our interpersonal relationships might be a lot closer than, say, for example, what happened in, in society in the 1950s and 1960s. And then think that the underlying uh, white supremacist foundation of this country in terms of you know what creates the systemic and institutional racism has suddenly changed now. Look, it's not, I'm not here to say that, you know, being on the campus of the University of Alabama in 1960 is the same as 2017. That's not what I'm saying. But you, we, we too often put upon uh, the millennials or, in my case, the Gen Xers or each succeeding gener younger generation this idea that because we are more integrated in terms of everything that we do in terms of society, that suddenly the, the views and the viewpoints – that uh, of you know that support white supremacy or systemic racism or individual racism have gone away, not necessarily at all. Um, one of the things I found when I was researching blackball was that it didn't really matter whether or not you had a conservative or a liberal president in the office. It didn't matter whether or not there was a Democrat or a Republican. Um, you see spikes, for example, we see spikes in terms of uh, with uh, with uh, uh, President Trump. Um, spikes in the 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 amount of the amount of hate crimes, but you never saw them disappear during the Obama administration. You never saw them disappear during the Nixon and the Carter administrations. They were always there. They were always there. I, I say they're they're pretty much as much as consistent on college campuses as cheerleaders at a college football game. 
Um, but what we like to see when we look at our, our you know, universities and college and universities is this idea that the, the students on those campuses are represent our future. So no one wants to look at the future and think to ourselves, well, you know, they still actually represent the past um, because they're coming from oftentimes in particular for uh, these students, they're coming from segregated America. Um, 80% of Latino students coming on college campuses come from segregated K-12 schools. 74% of African Americans come from uh, segregated K-12 schools, which means, of course, you know, con- you know, on the contrary, that white students are coming from predominantly 80 to 85 percent uh, segregated schools. So we can't be su- surprised that, you know, that the social structures on college campuses, such as fraternity, you know, predominantly white fraternities and sororities, tend to uh, to to reinforce the, the negative racial stereotypes that they have. Now, the, the problem I actually spoke at the University of Maryland uh, last year and uh, talked about some of the issues that were going on at the University of Maryland. I am not surprised by the fact that the that the rhetoric um, and, and and I think we need to be very, very careful to not just make uh, the young man who uh, who killed uh, the, the young Bowie State uh, student into a subset. You know, because he was a member of an alt-right group that we say, oh, well, he's a subset of, of, a, of a group of, of white students. No, he was a University of Maryland student. And he was the only thing that he did differently than a lot of the uh, students on college campuses around this country is that he acted in violence. And we see basically a canary in the coal mine when we see these incidents, whether or not it's rhetoric. Uh, that is that is we can be termed as a, as hate speech, or as we see demonstrative actions on college campuses amongst white students against minorities in order to intimidate and threaten them on a regular basis. And too often, what we do, and I, I always tell people, I went to the University of California, Berkeley, the home of free speech. I love free speech, but one of the problems is that when we think of free speech as being simply just some sort of you know, holy uh, grail that, you know, doesn't have repercussions. It has repercussions and it has repercussions in terms of uh, the, the consequences or lack of accountability that comes from some of that speech that sometimes can uh, end up and act out in terms of violence or just the idea that, that, that minority students on college campuses don't feel welcome on those college campuses. Lawrence Ross, his latest book is called Blackball, the Black and White Politics of Race on America's Campuses. I'm Tom Hall. It's midday. We're talking about racial tension at universities across the country. Ashley Vasquez, uh, you're with me here in the studio. Um, I understand that when uh, you all, you're, you're jun- you just finished your junior year, when you all came back to campus after Christmas break, there were posters all over campus recruiting uh, people to join a hate group. Uh, tell us what, what that was about. What was your experience with that? Uh, Yeah, so when we came back from winter break, the beginning of the spring 2017 semester, there were uh, white supremacist posters posted all over academic buildings, uh, asking students to join these white supremacy groups, asking students to stand up for white supremacy groups, to call the number listed on the poster, and, and basically speak out against the minorities on the campus, say that they weren't welcomed. And uh, the university did nothing about it. Uh, we, uh, as Protect UMD, uh, we made the posters very known to our campus. Um, you know, and Protect UMD is this coalition of, of uh, student groups on campus. Yes. To remind pro- folks of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Protect UMD is a coalition of over, of over 25 different student uh, groups on campus. And uh, so, you know, we displayed the posters on social media to let people know that they were there and that the university did nothing about them. Um 
And for us, you know, we've known that we've had white supremacists on our campus. That's not a surprise. It's, you know, nothing new. But to see them, you know, finally take another step and really put themselves out there was more fearful fearful for us as minorities on, on campus uh, because things were progressing more than we thought they should. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a... Um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum. On race. So we can discuss the incident. And the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. You chose to cynically, deliberately, selfishly, and dishonestly manipulate the village, just like the boy who cried wolf. Invoking the lessons of a fairy tale to punish real-life convicted liars. From WNYG, Albany, in HD. News Channel 13, live at 5, begins right now. Good evening and thanks for joining us. I'm Jim Cambridge. And good evening. I'm Benita Zahn. Three years probation and 200 hours of community service. That's the sentence handed down today to two former UAlbany students convicted of lying about a fight on a CGTA bus. Dan Levy was in court and joins us with reaction. Good evening, Dan. Jim, Benita, good evening. In the pre-sentencing report, the Department of Probation recommended incarceration for Asia Burwell and Ariel Agudio. And up until the moment of sentencing, there was noticeable concern on the faces of the defense and their families. And when those young women realized that jail time had been averted, there was palpable relief throughout the courtroom. We're ready to proceed. Asia Burwell and Ariel Agudio could have avoided the trial. All they had to do was say they're sorry. I just think it's unfortunate that these young ladies chose criminal convictions rather than telling the truth and apologizing. Both women had one final chance to apologize on their sentencing day. Neither one did. I know about the importance of abiding by our society's laws, and it was never my intent to break any of them. But a jury decided they did break the law by lying to authorities about being victims of a racial attack on a CDTA bus 18 months ago. I've seen the video. The jurors saw the video. All the videos from the bus. What occurred on that bus is nothing close to what you reported, Ms. Agudio, and you reported, Ms. Burwell. Their punishment, three years probation, and 200 hours of community service. If there were three white girls on that bus, right. with a busload of black, black people, people with, and, and, and they were drunk and disorderly, do you for one second think we would be here right now? Racial overtones that were pervasive during the trial continued even after sentencing. This is a judge, uh, unfortunately, in this situation that may be viewing it from his vantage point. He cannot stand in the shoes of Ms. Burwell. She is an African-American woman who has experienced what America has done to her. Racial bias at the University of Albany campus is real. I don't think there is a student, a black student or a student of color who could tell you otherwise. At the end of the day, the judge admonished both young women for manipulating the village, just like the boy who cried wolf. But the moral of that story is that no one believes liars even when they tell the truth. Defense attorneys have already filed an appeal of today's sentencing. And coming up at 6 o'clock, you will hear Judge McDonough lecture the young women about who he sees as the real victims of this crime. Reporting live, Dan Levy, News Channel 13. Jim and Benita. Dan, thank you. Canada. We should move to Canada. Right now, 
I want to talk to you about the meeting of the Toronto Police Services Board on Thursday because we talked about it and previewed it last week on the show and told you it was going to be a big deal. It was more than that. This was by far, I've been living in Toronto 12 and a half years now. I've gone to a lot of public meetings over the years, friends. This was by far the most violent, the most dangerous, and the most irresponsible and corrupt public meeting that I have ever attended since I moved to the city of Toronto over 12 years ago. And I've been to a lot. And we're going to take a lot of time. We're not going to rush through this because this meeting actually went on for the better part of eight hours. We only have one on this show, but we're going to devote a good part of it to telling you exactly what happened in that meeting. News reports on a meeting like that that lasted eight hours might go for 30 or 45 seconds. It does not give you the scope of what happened. And I need to explain it to you right now. So let's go. Of course, the issue of having police officers stationed in dozens of schools in Toronto through something called the School Resource Officer Program, known as the SRO Program, that was the big topic of discussion on Thursday. So we knew that that was going to be talked about. The public were invited to come and give statements about that issue. And let me tell you something. People showed up. The police... And the school boards of the city of Toronto teamed up to make sure that people were in that room by the dozens to speak. And what's so interesting about that is that the police and the Toronto District School Board and the Toronto Catholic District School Board, well, they're the ones who brought in the SRO program years ago without consulting anyone. They didn't consult the public. There was no chance for anybody to talk about it. So it's interesting all these years later that the first time that there's a major public review, those exact same groups are like, we need to have the most say here. Well, you introduce the program. So why aren't you letting anybody else talk? And when I say letting, I literally mean that. Let me explain to you what I mean when I say that this was the most dangerous and irresponsible and violent meeting of the public that I've ever been to. The meeting was held at Toronto Police Headquarters at 40 College Street, as every meeting of this board is held. Teachers and principals from the Toronto Catholic District School Board took kids out of school on Thursday so that they could come down to the police headquarters and talk about how much they like police in schools. Usually in June, there's a moratorium at schools on taking field trips. A lot of you parents out there will know this. You're trying to wrap up for the end of the year. The older students, like many of those who are at this meeting, have exams in June. So you usually don't take school trips in June. Well, the principals and teachers at the Toronto Catholic District School Board decided to make an exception because they wanted to support the police. So they pulled dozens of students out of schools, put them on buses This costs money. Whose money was used for this? And brought them down to the headquarters of the police. Now, since the police are in their own headquarters, they control what happens in the rooms. So there were lots of chairs put out so that all of their supporters could come and sit in the rooms. Police actually, armed police officers, sat in chairs that were presumably there for the public. And then when their supporters came, they would get up and say, oh, we we saved your chairs for you. 
I also heard a police officer talking to some young people about how there was going to be lunch later on. So it's very obvious that the Toronto Catholic District School Board and the police collaborated to make sure that all of their folks got into the room. But this is where the problem started. Because once there were about 200 people in that room, most of them police officers or the friends of police, well, then the police went and they closed the double doors that enter into the meeting room for the public and they put police officers barricading those doors with guns. And those police officers then proceeded to have their colleagues bring up bikes police bikes, so that they could block the double doors of a public meeting room with police bikes. Many of the people who they trapped on the outside of those doors had signed up and their names were on the list to speak and they were not even allowed to get into the room. So when you hear the coverage, you might think that there was a protest going on outside of the meeting while there were nice, calm people trying to talk on the inside getting disrupted. Well, many of the people who were on the outside signed up to speak and the police physically blocked them from entering. But here's the most incredible thing and the most irresponsible thing about what happened at that meeting. I want you guys to think about this. There are people in a room, the capacity is a little over 200. They're inside the room thinking that the public meeting is about to happen and they have no idea that the, public, the police have barricaded the doors behind them when they walked in and shut the doors. If there had been a fire in that room, if there had been an emergency in that room, what would have happened to those 200 people who the police broke the fire code for so that they could block other people who they didn't want to hear from from getting into the room? People literally could have been killed and they would have been the students that the police brought there to support them. But they were so intent on not hearing from anyone else that they violated the fire code and barricaded 200 people inside a room without telling them. I don't care what you think about this issue. That is the most irresponsible and dangerous thing I've ever seen the police do at a public meeting besides actually taking out the batons and the cuffs to people. It was despicable. And I'm not even talking about the meeting yet. What happened at this meeting that was so critical for the police that they needed to make sure that no one else was able to talk? Well, we know that the police are very strong about wanting to keep police officers in our schools. For them, it seems like it's not an option. And they wanted to make sure that only the people who were supporting them were heard from. And they got a lot of help from politicians on the board. Here's Mayor John Tory, who is, of course, on the Toronto Police Services Board, and he's asking a question of somebody who gave a public speech um, and who, who was very, very critical of having police officers in school. Listen to what Mayor John Tory asked that person. Mayor Tory, well, just, just so I'm clear on that, it, we heard a lot of people come forward today, and I, I've never met 99.9% of them. Are they all, like, they, they showed up to say supportive things, and a lot of them were young people. Um, were they all then here under some intimidation or spell or something? Were they all here under some intimidation or spell? No, most of them were actually there because they were bussed in by the Toronto Catholic District School Board. And Mayor Tory's pretending like he doesn't know that. Did you hear how he said, I haven't met 99.9% of the people who spoke today? So I guess there was 1% of people there that he knew. 
is pretty hilarious. But this was all a political theater to act as though, you know, we just want to hear from the public. And why are you criticizing people? Are, are they all brainwashed into loving the police? I mean, at least half a dozen of the deputants were police officers from the program itself. So police decide to have a program. The public says the program's not working. You have a public deputa- deputation inside of a police, meet- uh, a police headquarters, and you invite police officers to tell you how the program is going. John Tory didn't see anything weird about that. He didn't see anything weird about the dozens of kids who got pulled out of school. Pulled out of school to come talk about this. That wasn't weird. What was weird was the few people who managed to make it in the doors who were critical of the program. I mentioned that it was very hard for people who were against this program to speak. You've probably heard a lot of accounts of kids saying that this is a good program and a good idea. I want to hear. I want you to hear from some of the people, though, who were ma- able to get in there and wanted to say something else. Katie German is a teacher who's been at both boards, Toronto Catholic and Toronto Public District School Board, and she had some very scathing criticism because this is the second time in a row that she had come to these meetings. I want you to hear some of Katie German. Many of you know me from last month. I was here at the meeting and shared my direct experiences with the SRO program. I've worked in the TDSB and TCDSB schools for the past 10 years, including schools with SROs. I've seen them every day. I shared with you stories at the time I watched an SRO grab a black student by the shirt collar and aggressively shake him because he missed hockey practice. That is an assault. How many stories of students being assaulted do you need to hear before you take action to stop it? I shared with you the time I witnessed a student be asked their immigration status in front of an armed SRO. How many stories of officers participating and violating the don't ask, don't tell policy do you need to hear before you will stop it from happening? Councillor Shelley, you said today that the deputations from last month stuck with you. What are you prepared to do about it? What are you prepared to do? It's not as if there are no stories. But Katie asks the right question. How many stories are our public officials willing to hear about kids being harmed by this program before they will act? I think that we know what the answer is. And the answer is that our officials have an unlimited tolerance for stories about abuse of this program. They don't have a threshold. They're convinced that the program is good, so they don't care how many bad stories they hear. But here's more from Katie German. When I did one of my teaching placements at a school in Rexdale, the SRO organized a trip to a local police station as part of a civics class field trip. He gave students a tour of the holding cells and said, this is where we keep the bad people. When they come in, they get half a pizza pocket. The students said, that's not enough food. He said, they're criminals, what do you expect? This is an SRO who's been in the Toronto Star many times because he coaches a football team. One of the students in that class had been detained previously in that cell. He dropped that class that week. What kind of a program in schools makes a kid who's been incarcerated have to take a field trip to go visit the cell where he was locked up by the police? For those of you who say that this is about building positive relationships, is that your idea of it? I'm going to keep going here because I need you to hear some more community voices here. This was probably the most powerful one of the evening, and it was a mother named Ren Niles. Poverty and crime are interdependent social phenomena. If you want to reduce crime, you reduce poverty. Textbook. Yet here we are in the 21st century on a Thursday evening debating whether the answer to the public safety of black and POC bodies in underserviced areas is more policing versus working towards social, sound social policy to address the inequalities of poverty and to alleviate the pressure of those who suffer from it. Seriously. Seriously. 
But Rand Niles wasn't done because as the mother of young children and as somebody who was a teenager herself once, she brought a little bit of common sense to this discussion. And I want you to hear that. Teenage livelihood is incredibly difficult because as parents of teenagers, we understand that parenting them is difficult because they are resistant to authority. The process of being a teenager is to break free from authority, to create civil disobedience, to make stupid choices. We have all done it as teenagers. And to know that there are other schools whose teenagers are not held to the criminality of civil disobedience. That these children, that these teenagers are put in a position where they don't have the freedom or the space to be able to be teenagers is disconcerting. Every single one of us here have been teenagers who made stupid decisions, who grew out of those decisions, who became better, amazing people, who learned how to integrate and deal with society in very valuable ways. But what tends to happen in this situation is once a child is criminalized, they are forever criminalized. And shame on you for thinking that people with guns, guns, are somehow the kinds of people that should be around when children, young adults, are figuring out how to be adults. That is disgusting, guys. It's disgusting. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you're losing. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Well, Mike, late this afternoon, we talked with that wounded off-duty officer's attorney, Attorney Rufus Tate. He says that the officer walked outside of his home where the incident ended, identified himself as an officer, and followed the officer's commands. We have a police officer standing in his own yard who's outside because he hears the commotion, sees the car crash in front of his neighbor's house right in the same block. And he comes out as in a conversation with some of the officers that are on the scene pursuing the stolen car. And he winds up getting shot. The attorney for the wounded 38-year-old African-American St. Louis police officer is making strong statements after police investigators say they shot one of their own. This happens to be the first time in the national discourse that we're aware of a black professional or a law enforcement officer himself being shot or treated as an ordinary black guy on the street. And we can see that this is a real problem. Detectives say it all unfolded around 10 last night when the license plate recognition system in downtown St. Louis spotted a car stolen from Maryland Heights last week. Officer used spike strips to stop the vehicle in North St. Louis. The three people in the car fired shots at officers. Police pursued the vehicle. The vehicle then stopped near Park and Astra where more shots were fired. Why are they chasing a stolen car all over town in these high-speed chases? They're always going to wind up in some kind of crash. We're told the off-duty officer who lives in the area came outside of his home, armed with his department-issued weapon, and was ordered to the ground by two officers. The officers recognized the off-duty officer and told him to stand and walk toward them. Meanwhile, a 36-year-old white male officer just arriving on the scene did not recognize the off-duty officer. He told city police investigators he feared for his safety, so he fired a shot hitting the off-duty officer in the arm. And in the police report that you have so far, there's absolutely no description of any type of threat he perceived. And so we have a real problem with that. But it also presents a bigger problem that's been a course of national discussion for the past two years. That is, 
this perception that a black man is automatically to be feared. Now, the off-duty officer that was shot in the arm is expected to make a full recovery. Meanwhile, a 17-year-old male suspect was also shot and wounded by officer. He's also expected to make a full recovery. Two suspects are in custody while one remains at large. The attorney for that wounded officer says he expects the St. Louis City Police Department to do a thorough and fair investigation. Live in downtown St. Louis, Kelly Hoskins, News 11. Seattle's a great place to visit because it has, I guess you could say, a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything. Sunday's shooting death of 30-year-old Charlena Lyles has left many people in shock. Seattle police released audio of the minutes leading up to the point when two officers drew their guns and fired. But there are a lot of unanswered questions, including how did a seemingly calm conversation between Lyles and the officers escalate to a shooting so quickly? Lyles was African-American and a mother of three. Her family said she had mental health issues. Jenny Henderson is a mental health counselor in Seattle with a largely black clientele. She told KUAW's Kim Malcolm that as an African-American, the news is hard to digest. I saw it on Facebook and... I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach. I thought to myself, not again, not here in Seattle. I was horrified by it, especially given the fact that this young woman had a history of of mental health issues. You know, something that, that struck me when I heard the audio of the officers talking was how calm and measured the three of them were, the two officers and Charlena herself talking about an Xbox that's missing, perhaps stolen. And then something happens. We hear the officer shouting and then there's there's gunshots. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can talk about this very much, but I'm wondering what happens in a situation like that where things can escalate so quickly. I don't know that I have enough information about this particular situation, but I know in a number of past situations, White police officers have felt threatened. They felt that their lives were in danger simply because they were encountering an African-American person. Like I said, there was another dimension to this given her mental illness, and they may not have been knowledgeable about what that meant, what behaviors they would encounter, or how to approach her in a way that would be less threatening. What what impact could this have on your clients going forward? Definitely it can increase a person's level of fear, just being out and about in the world. If If we as African Americans feel we are not valued and our life is not valued, that's just an extra burden of stress as we go about our life. It can make us more reactive. It can make us parent differently toward our children. We interact differently in the workplace because we have this tension that's ever-growing and hasn't been addressed and hasn't been dealt with in a way that's effective. Going forward, what questions do you have that you'd like answered? One of the first questions that came to mind was, how are the police trained and what's different now than the way they interacted with people in a crisis previously. There has to be a way to decompress and de-escalate the situation that's nonviolent. That didn't occur in this incident, and, and that 
really concerns me. It frightens me. Jenny, you have a 14-year-old son. What are you going to tell him about the shooting? How are you going to talk about it? I haven't figured out what to say exactly about this. But it is important to discuss it, to make sure that he knows how to be as safe as possible out in the world and how to navigate an encounter with the police. Of course, there's no guarantees of his safety. He can do everything right and there can still be a tragedy. But he and I need to have that conversation and I'll have to choose my words carefully. That's Jenny Henderson, a mental health counselor in Seattle. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 24th, 2017. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have observations, thoughts to share. Uh, the number 641 715 Four zero, the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four. Three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, a couple things before we get to folks who dialed in. Number one, Dr. Tommy Curry, he'll be here on Tuesday, uh, this coming Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you want to join in, questions about Delectable Negro, dial in. Again, that's Tuesday, June 27th. Uh, his first time being with us this calendar year. We'll discuss the new book as well, The Man Not. Second, uh, we've been having some tech issues, and they seem to be exclusive to the live stream at Black Talk Radio Network and TuneIn, uh, where there's some sort of uh, clicking sound. I'm not sure where it's from, uh, but it seems to be exclusive uh, to the stream. So I'm going to listen. I, I trouble did some troubleshooting for about two hours 
after the broadcast yesterday evening, and uh, it, the problem seemed to be eliminated. I didn't hear it uh, for the two hours that I listened uh, after you know trying to work with it for a while, uh, and I'm listening today as well. Hopefully, it's been corrected. Uh, you can let me know. Drop an email until justice at gmail.com and let me know if it, you know, sounds distorted or uh, if you're having any problems uh, listening on the live stream, Black Talk Radio Network or tune in. Much obliged. Uh, next, <clears throat> I guess this would be a report of something personal that happened to Gus T uh, this week. This actually does connect to my wish list uh, at the end, but uh I guess for context, so I'm in Seattle, Washington, Pacific Northwest, uh, Charlena Lyles. Uh, she was killed by Seattle Police Department just in the last few days. Uh, they had the big protest in the city. Lots of white moaning and weeping uh, with regards to that incident over the past few days. Uh, but that happened just over the past week. Uh, and so Wednesday morning, June 21st, <laughs> if I'm correct, uh, I have been waiting on a critical piece of mail. Uh, so I get up Wednesday morning. I go to check the mailbox. Our mail comes pretty early out here. Uh, so I go to check the mailbox. Nothing. Uh, I'm disgruntled. Uh, I'm walking back, uh, but trying to see, you know, what other things I'm going to do with my day uh, to make it constructive, even though I am, you know, disgruntled about the mail. Uh, so I go and I will concede Gusty could be a heathen. I go to brush my teeth. And I stroll outside while I'm brushing my teeth. I can see many would say that's just heathen behavior. Now, I'm walking outside. I'm not, you know, taking a mile hike through the city. I'm just basically walking on my block. Uh, and it's nice outside. It's sunny. It was not very sunny the past week, but it has been nice and summer-like weather, uh, finally, the past couple days. So... I'm walking, brushing my teeth, and I walk past uh, where the recycling bins are, and I'm just, you know, walking on the street. I spot another white person, or rather, I spot a white person. I've never seen him before. I don't know him. He doesn't know me. I'm just, I'm brushing my teeth. He, you know, sees me. We don't speak. Continue walking. Uh, I basically, like, walk to the end of the block, brushing my teeth. I walk back to the house, uh, rinse, my, rinse out my mouth, and then I walk to the garage, Garage is not uh, connected to the house. So I walk to the garage and I'm digging around trying to find something. All of a sudden, someone from, oh, and um, my back is uh, not facing the door. So I can't see if anyone else comes to the garage or enters the garage. So all of a sudden I hear, uh, excuse me, sir. And I turn around and it is a white enforcement officer uh, in the garage speaking to me. I'm stunned. Like, whoa, what is what is going on? Uh, you know, I and again, I think it's been maybe a total of 10 minutes since I rolled out of bed. Just enough time for me to see I did not get my mail and to brush my teeth. So I'm just what what is going on? I'm stunned. Uh, he says, do you live here? Yes. What's your name? Give him my name. He says, OK. Uh, we had a report that someone thought, uh, you were a prowler or some sort of suspicious individual, uh, slinking through the neighborhood. He said prowler suspicious, uh, specifically. Uh, and so he says, uh, is there anyone at the residence that can verify that you, you live here? And I say, uh, yes. So he knocks on the door 
And surprisingly, another black person answers the door. At least that was what was reported to me by the black female who answered the door, uh, that he looked very surprised. (laughs) She took it that he was surprised that another black person answered the door. Anyway, uh, she verified, yes, he does live here. And he says, okay. And uh, he comes back to me and says, you know, I apologize. I'm so sorry, sir. If you can imagine this police officer, if anyone, if you've seen like uh, the Simpsons ever, Ned Flanders, super, super courteous, nice, sir, all of that. I'm still thinking race soldier. Just this one is courteous race soldier. So he comes back. He apologizes. Uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll be on my way. Uh, Sorry for, you know, disturbing your morning. You know, have a good day. He leaves in an unmarked black SUV. And for added context, I think from the time that I saw the white guy when I you know, was brushing my teeth, from the time that I saw him to the time that I came back, rinsed my mouth, was in the garage and the police officer arrived, I think a total of five minutes elapsed. I, I mean, I would have a hard time. I could see maybe seven. I would have a hard time conceding 10 minutes because I don't think 10 minutes elapsed from the time that I saw that white guy who was my primary suspect that <clears throat> saw me brushing my teeth and said, oh my God, we, that, that is a suspicious nigger there. <laughs> I know those niggers. They get the, the toothbrush and make a shank out of it or some sort of weapon to break into houses and steal all kinds of items. I'm going to report this nigger right now. He's my primary suspect. Um, maybe five minutes elapsed for this white officer to arrive in an unmarked SUV to respond to this incident. So maybe 20 minutes total has elapsed from the time, by the time he exits and everything, maybe 20 minutes total has elapsed from the time that I have crawled out of bed, checked the mail, disgruntled, and have had brushed my teeth and have had enforcement officers called on me as a suspicious person in a neighborhood where I've lived for uh, six months now. So I'm trying to process all of this. And I literally at the time. I thought of Cheryl Judice uh, for anyone who has listened to the cows uh, for a number of years. Or if you've listened to our extensive archives, 1500 plus programs, Cheryl Judice, non-white person. She said explicitly she's not a victim of white supremacy, but on this program, She did not agree with my views, my definition on racism. And she asked rhetorically, she said, Gus, how do you get out of bed in the morning with the way that you, you know, conceptualize and define white supremacy? If that's the world that you think that we live in, how do you get out of bed in the morning? And I said at that time, I said, some days it's hard. 20 minutes into June 21st, 2017, I was ready to call it a wrap and get back in bed. And now this has nothing to do with, you know, the counter racist lesson from all of this, if there is one. But the rest of the day was terrible. Uh, By the end of the day, I said, yep, that would have been the best course of action to just have gotten back in bed 20 minutes in and said, I will wait on Thursday and we'll try this again. At any rate, I thought of Shell Judice and I said, yeah, some days it's very hard. And I think this happens to Charlena Lyles. This happens to black people around the world every day. Uh, We're just a toothbrush and somehow you are a fiend, you are a criminal. And in my view, I think for many race soldiers, for many whites, 
that is their enjoyment with regards to practicing white supremacy. I don't have to be, uh, you don't have to see a black person doing something suspicious. I could have been outside with a broom sweeping the street, getting debris, picking up litter, performing, you know, voluntary community service to beautify the neighborhood. And that still could have been grounds to say, oh, I'm going to call the police on that. And in fact, I also remembered I spoke with a white enforcement officer. This was in 2000. This was in 2007. This was months before the cows came into existence white enforcement officer and we were talking about racism we spoke we ended up talking for like hours he can see after hours of conversation and back and forth and disagreeing he concedes you know white people call me all the time this is a police officer in seattle white people call me all the time and just say oh there's a black person you need to go over there and get him he said they will say that sometimes and other times they'll say oh there's a black person and he was looking suspicious he was looking around like he was trying to find a car to break into they'll try and add a little bit more to the, to legitimize their call but he said at the end of the day they get tons of these calls all the time black person you need to go do something about him uh it you know he he stopped short after he recognized like whoa why am i telling truth to this nigger and he stopped himself and ended the conversation but he conceded a few things but that came to my mind as well this is the system of racism white supremacy and these types of events are i know it was traumatizing for me uh, and i suspect that for millions of black people worldwide having that sort of event where you are on your property and you are being harassed. You're in your neighborhood where you pay taxes, the whole nine, and you're being harassed and thought of as, you know, some sort of invader, some sort of criminal element. Um, it was and making sure I connect full circle with, with what happened. My wish list, as I stated, I was brushing my teeth black female pregnant black female that i live with that i've talked about who verified yes that nigra does live here uh she's like hey cheer up you know don't let it mess up uh the rest of your day you got a package white people are gonna be racist and you know she's being very supportive she's here you got your package uh so uh, i opened my package and i kid you not it was a sonic care electric toothbrush <laughs> and uh i cracked up laughing saying speaking of of toothbrushes uh and Everyone had a good chuckle. And then I thought for a second and I said, man, I don't think this would have made the situation any better at all. It would have been, oh, man, he's stealing toothbrushes. You know, you know, good and well, you cannot afford that. He's going through stealing white people's electric toothbrushes. Call the right now. Get the police. He's stealing. He's robbed us all. Uh, it was a harrowing day. The toothbrush was uh, a nice uh, pick me up. But that is the stress of racism, white supremacy. That is another reason why self-care for everyone, including Gus T, is very important because these sorts of uh, abuses are ongoing every day worldwide. That is what the system of white supremacy is and why the system needs to be replaced immediately. With that, we'll get to the callers. Number again, 641 seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh, if you could take five minutes to share make your observations or comments that way everyone gets an opportunity to share if you have additional comments we should have ample time after everyone has spoken for you to add your comments 
or questions. If we could refrain from using metaphors, that would be appreciated. It's been my observation. Racists, a lot of times, they are practicing deception, racism, by using metaphors, analogies, where they compare things that are not equivalent. Victims, non-white people, a lot of times, we are still learning. We have not come to conclusions on some of our thoughts. And so we will use an analogy or a metaphor and hope that that accurately conveys what we're thinking. Often they do not. These metaphors and comparisons, uh, they just promote confusion. Uh, if we could just speak directly, explicitly to what it is that we want to say would be much appreciated. Thank you so much. Uh, with that, if you're in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would also be greatly appreciated. Uh, with that, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. This is Red from Ohio. Um, I actually didn't have much to comment on the segments tonight. I was actually, I actually um, recently listened to the previous um, broadcast from last Saturday and a male caller, he had asked about the, um, the basically the opioid uh, epidemic here in Ohio, which prompted me to do some research. And he was just mainly talking about, well, where are they putting all the bodies since uh, the bodies from people who have OD'd? And um, I was trying to find out more information about that, but it basically led me to the the point um, before the people actually um, overdose. And there was an article in the Columbus Dispatch, uh, which is the central in Central Ohio, for those who don't know, and it was talking about how in Franklin County, um, which is in Central Ohio, um, over overdose deaths are up by 66%. And um, after just doing a bunch of different research, um, it's mainly, um, they in the article, they did say that that was more than um, HIV and also a homicide. Uh, one of the Columbus, uh, the Columbus Health Commissioner, uh, she had actually said she's in her words, she called the opioid epidemic, the people who are addicts, she said that they had a substance use disorder and said it was a treatable brain disease. And, of course, as I'm sure uh, all of us know as far as the opioid epidemic, of course, is being treated as a disease. And what I was able to find out was that, um, of course, the wider counties are being, um, do have the most deaths. And it's mainly actually uh, males. Uh, Two-thirds uh, are actually white males who are dying. So, of course, with racist, since they want to protect their own, they, within the span of five years, so it started in 2012, they started to um, uh, allow grants for grant funding to distribute Narcan, which is a reversal drug for or a, a drug to help, um, they, they call it an antidote to opioid um, um, use or opioid um, overdoses. And so, what they have done with our tax, with the people who are paying taxes, non-white and white alike, 
they're actually making sure that this drug is more available. Um, they've not only in, in the past, within this five years, which is something I didn't know about just by reading this article that came out um, on the 20th, they have increased the funding. They're actually investing $1 billion this year um, to not only help distribute this drug, but to also help law enforcement efforts to increase mental health and addiction care through Medicaid and um, just some other notes. So it definitely just, it, it definitely helps me to be less confused as far as understanding that racism is just not just blatantly discrimination, name calling, whatever, but they're actually taking my money, my tax paying money to help um, cure white addicts that they're now calling, um, that they're referring to it as a disease. And also not only that, they were able to, the attorney general was able to work with the pharmaceutical company that makes this uh, Narcan drug to help them to put a price freeze on the drug for um, public agencies who are going to help distribute it to people, quote unquote, people, those who are in need. And not only that, whites were able to come up with a, uh, a law. It's called the Ohio Good Samaritan uh, Law. It's a part of HB 110. And it says that um, it'll provide immunity from prosecution to, to those who are seeking uh, medical help or emergency help um, who are victim of or who have um, basically people who are addicts. If you're seeking help, they, under this provision, you could get immunity. So it, it, it's just, it's just this testable um, just all this research, but um, I did hope that that, uh, if the gentleman um, is listening, I did hope that helped, and uh, thank you for allowing me to share. Can I be heard? Great research. Great research uh, for Red in uh, in Ohio. I think is that uh, Rob in Wisconsin? Uh, yes, it is. Greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to the rest of the callers and the listeners. Um, glad to be able to participate this evening. Um <clears throat> building on uh, what the caller in Ohio uh, was speaking on as far as the opioid. Uh, last week I saw a post on Facebook. Uh, someone posted an article about a mother in, I think, Albany, New York, lost her daughter to a uh, opioid overdose, and she is working on putting forth a bill, uh, a law that will um, get the... Uh, the dealer will receive up to 15 to 25 years uh, for the uh, death of an opioid overdose. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. Um, today I um, actually had a very constructive contact with my oldest daughter. Um, I have been disconnected from her for a while. Um, it's been stated that I'm teaching my children to hate white people, and I'm angry, and um, basically, like, um, I'm too angry to be around my children, and uh, so today, um, <clears throat> it was just me and her. Uh, I got to take her to a, uh open house and block party at the uh, daycare that I will um, be employed at. Uh, so it was very constructive. A large number of black people 
um, getting along harmoniously. <clears throat> and uh, I got to actually talk to my daughter uh, for like a couple of hours, uh, very constructive interaction. Uh, I got to inform her that um, I made the dean's list uh, in my last semester in school and have maintained a 3.5 uh, grade point average, uh, which she didn't know. Um, so I was uh, very uh, happy to pass on that information and um, not from a position of um, bragging, um, but a, from a position of um, wanting to inspire my daughter. Um, my oldest daughter is fluent in Spanish. Uh, she goes to a uh, Spanish immersion uh, elementary school. Uh, she will be going on to the fifth grade, and um, I think that she will be continuing her second language and uh, once she uh, transitions to high school. Um, I don't have uh, a lot more to share uh, at this moment, um, but I will say um, codification uh, has been very important uh, while I'm going through this transition period. Uh, on a positive note, uh, the last residence I was staying in, um, I was the fifth person to live within the household. And before I came to the household, um, people in within that household would uh, greet each other with, like, the elevator insults first thing in the morning. Uh, specifically, I remember one black male saying to a black male, what's up, gorilla? Um, and I'm uh, trying not to be vulgar. Um, so what I noticed is when I uh, rose in the morning, um, I would just greet each person in the house with a simple good morning, and I saw that catch on. And thank you for letting me share. That is awesome. Congratulations on making the Dean's List and equally uh, having constructive time with your uh, with your daughter. That is uh, equally spectacular. And particularly, I remember the context. You're talking about some of the, the difficulties you were having with school and everything. So to go back and to be uh, performing brilliantly. Awesome. Great uh, illustration of black self-respect uh, in uh, in both regards uh, and with uh I guess improving your living situation, getting the black people there to be uh, more courteous, put down some of that anti-blackness. Awesome. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, you should be with us. See other hands. I don't know if people are doing their spectator uh Thing and listening, <laughs> but uh, there are other hands up. I don't know. They might be in place where they uh, are not able to speak yet. Uh, I can add an addendum uh, to my segment uh, with the policing in the area. 24 hours after I was stopped for brushing my teeth in public, a neighbor was involved in a hit and run. He was the victim. Uh, someone rear-ended him and took off. He called the police. This happened with within 24 hours of my situation he called the police waited two hours and they still didn't show up he was hit 
damage to the vehicle. Luckily, he was, you know, physically fine and everything. But, I mean, significant, sizable uh, damage to the vehicle. Uh, probably, you know, hundreds, hundreds of dollars uh, of damage easily, if not more than that. And, uh, and a hit and run. I mean, it's, you know, multiple uh, violations here probably. Could have been substance abuse, too. They got a big drug problem here in uh, the Seattle area talking about the opioids. Two hours, no response. Don't know what the uh, all the variables were uh, with the situation, but just for additional context, uh, being black and brushing your teeth in public, five-minute response. Uh, other folks uh, that dialed in with a hand up, y'all have uh, commentary or folks still spectating? I reckon they're still spectating. Always wonderful when people die, and particularly when it's multiple people dialing with hands up and they're being quiet, wacky. Uh, I was going to make sure I reminded folks as well uh, when uh, Dr. Curry comes back and people have questions for Delectable Negro, because I'm going to probably try and devote most of the segment to uh, his book, The Man Knot, which I've been reading over uh, probably since Wednesday. Got that from my wish list as well. Amazon.com, Gus T. Renegade. Uh, but I've been reading that over the past week. Fascinating book. Uh, where he goes into a lot more detail about uh, some of the concepts that he's discussed uh, on the program down through the years. And uh, it was great <laughs> to be able to to see some of it. I'm, I'm not done yet. I still got about, I think, three chapters to go. But I'm going to probably devote most of the program to going into details on those uh, parts of his new book. But I do want to try and at least get in one question about Delectable Negro, because he's mentioned it so many times, the years that he's been on the program. And we finally read the book uh, on the book club this past year. So I'm going to try and get in at least one, maybe two questions right at the beginning. And then if anybody else, if you have a question you want to get in about Delectable Negro, be prepped for Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, did that someone sound like they were going to share or am I just hearing things? Can be heard. Yes, ma'am. Hello? Yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Okay. Um, some people are shy, I guess. But um, thanks for taking my call. This is Princess, caller from Florida. Um, is it okay if I can go into um, an update for my workplace racism? Certainly. Okay. So, uh, to give everyone an update, basically, I received a call um, from a representative from Orlando, I guess. Um, it, it was since a week and a half ago since I had talked to the people from corporate. Uh, a lady wanted to meet with me. Uh, I recommended that we meet off-site from work. Uh, so... We had went to some restaurant or whatever, and basically she wanted to sit down. Um, she was initially just going to be there for an hour, but it turned into two and a half hours of me just going through uh, what had transpired. And like I said, I pretty much uh, had been keeping my uh, notes of specific things uh, that had taken place Uh and documentation on hand with me. So I carry my notebook in my purse and stuff like that. So if I needed to reference anything, it was just on the fly. 
I can do so. And overall, um, you know, I'm not going to expect uh, anything spectacular, uh, but it was good just to be able to see just how uh, refined white people are, especially dealing with HR matters, because when I uh, went into specifics about uh, talking about how I felt um, people were mistreating me, you know, my first day I had the incident about my hair on the job, and, like, she kind of froze and then uh, was basically giving me a, a story about how she once had to deal with a Muslim uh female where they had to move her from a store because a pharmacist had said something out of the way, um, uh, something uh, against her religion, and it was kind of sexualized or whatever, and how they had to uh, step in and um, remove her from that store location and whatnot. And she made the comment talking about, as I was telling her about the story about the white lady that was making a derogatory comments about my hair and my ethnicity and stuff. Um, she was basically saying, well, what do you say to people like that? Like she was kind of trying to ask me to get my response. Uh, but she was doing it in a coded way because she was like, because it's not like we could fire them or anything, right? And it was like, why are you asking me? I mean, she was like, and then she went on to talking about, you know, in the age of political correctness and stuff like that. So I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it was, it was uh, like I said, it was interesting because um, I already know I just don't have patience with white people at this point because we're at a point, I think, where it's pretty clear that uh, – white people don't care about uh, producing or promoting any type of justice for uh, non-black people or black people. So um, just going into the job and having to deal with the stuff that black people have to deal with day to day is is very stressful. But um, she's supposed to be following up with me. I was going to give Mr. Fuller a call because I wanted, she did make mention that she wanted me to, uh, uh, she would be in contact with me because eventually that they would want to collect a statement from me. And I know from my experience thus far uh, with my employer that I've been working with for the past couple of years now that the last time I did a statement, it was used against me because basically they they just uh, changed the name to the person who it was initially written by and was acting in defense of the the store manager who I had an issue with. So I was going to talk with him uh, about that to go over that again. But uh, the the main crux of the issue now is the fact that they know that what he did was wrong. She did acknowledge that. But, uh, you know, it was almost as if she tried to uh, give out a plethora of reasons or justifications as to why 
he, you know, they she used the word, oh, it could have been a misunderstanding and this, that, and the other. And I guess each time when she would do that, I was looking at her or giving her that eye like, uh, no. And um, so basically where it stands at now, um, they, they're, um, it's almost as if they're trying to search to see if there's any other way to try to explain something like this. Um, but I did reiterate to her about, uh, in reference to the fifth and the 14th amendment and just went into my whole spiel, uh, of logic, uh, with her about where I stand. And so, like I said, she'll be in contact with me from this point on. And as far as the, the initial investigator who's over um, my case, so it's just kind of a waiting game, but. Lots of waiting games with the workplace racism uh, segments, but that good job just being uh, prepared. Uh, sounds like you had done your prep work talking to Mr. Fuller and using the Constitution uh, strategically. Uh, and then not being surprised. And that's that's when I would say, well, we can talk about this on Thursday, workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. But uh, definitely workplace situations. It's great to be prepared. We talk about that a lot. But to be prepared, if you have a white person, especially if it's a white person in HR or a white supervisor, manager, and you are presenting a situation where you're being mistreated, something incorrect is happening and they act as if either they don't know what to do to solve the situation or just have never had to deal with a situation like this before uh, or are just so ignorant uh, that they just, you know, just are, are struggling with how to proceed and almost as if they're asking your input uh, about, you know, how to move forward. Uh, generally, they have policy and procedure. Uh, it's generally been my experience. If a black person does something incorrect, they are not fumbling and having a problem trying to figure out how to address things. If this person, if you need to take punitive actions, they don't have that problem. Uh, I would have the manual. If you want to go the Constitution route, you can have the uh, policy and procedure there as well. Uh, you can already be looking at what policies, regulations have potentially been violated uh, with whatever issue you are uh, having to deal with. But great job, Princess. Uh, update us. Let us know uh, how things proceed. Stay uh, consistent. Sounds like you've been doing a great job. Um, other folks who uh, dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary you wanted to share, line should be open. Proceed. I still saw other hands in. Maybe. Oh. Yes, sir. We can hear you, Mr. Steele. Awesome, awesome. Uh, this is uh, Ken Steele, and uh, I am currently in uh, El Segundo at the moment. And, um, yeah, I wanted to start out this week um, by, I guess, uh, saying uh, that victims of racism um, – I think that we ought to um, pay very close attention to the amount of uh, salt that we are um, intaking because uh, very recently um, in the last month um, I was in um, a really stressful um, work situation and, uh, and I left that situation and I also reduced uh, greatly the amount of 
um, salt intake that I've had over the last month. And I have had uh, a tremendous, a tremendous uh, um, reduction in my blood pressure. Uh, my blood pressure um, was taken last month. Oh, some uh, Hebrew Israelites are, are, I guess, passing out papers. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> very strange. Anyway, um, uh, I was, uh, I, I had my blood pressure mon uh, checked and uh, it was over, it was uh, at 150 over something like, uh, over the past, over the two days that I was getting it checked, it fluctuated between um, 150 over uh, 90 and 150 over 80. And, um, you know, my doctor was telling me that that was simply uh, not sustainable and was inquiring about my work situation and my diet. And um, those were the two things that um, he attributed to this uh, tremendous increase in my blood pressure. And he said that these things needed to be changed. I, I changed them. And in a month, I reduced my blood pressure down to something like uh, one, uh, 116 over 60. So that's uh, well within the normal range. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm not going to die. I was told that, you know, if I kept it that high, I was going to die. And um, I suspect that it was a, a lot of the workplace racism that I was uh, um, experiencing combined with um, a really poor diet. I was just not, um, I was just not focusing on um, eating correctly. So I just want to urge victims of racism, you know, if you do have uh, blood pressure issues, Stay away from the salt. Stay away from anything that comes, uh, you know, all salted and you know, in a box or in a bag or anything like that. Oftentimes, it's just not going to be good. And and please monitor that. Also, um, earlier this week, um, I was in a conversation um, with some people about the uh, Bill Cosby case and some uh, suspected racists. Uh, they asked me uh, a question. Um, they asked. Uh, were you ever sexually assaulted yourself? And, you know, uh, my initial response was going to be no, but I took a moment and I thought about my personal history. And, you know, I have to say that I was sexually assaulted by law enforcement at the age of 19. And I suspect that so many other victims of racism have been victimized in this way. And we don't even take the time to deconstruct and figure out what happened to us. You know, we just go through this system and then we get processed and then that's justice or that's the wheels of justice turning or what, whatever they want to call it. And if you take a pause, so many victims of racism, especially male victims of racism, have been sexually assaulted by law enforcement. They will stop you and they call it stop and frisk. They'll stop and frisk you. Or if you are put in a situation where you're put in a greater confinement, as I was at one point, they will literally uh, violate you in a, in a really uh, a dehumanizing way. I think Dave Chappelle had a joke about it where he said, you know, spread your cheeks and lift your sack. And everybody in the country is now, you know, that's just, you know, another joke uh, about the way that, you know, black people are being raped in this system. And I, 
man, my outrage when I sat back and I thought about what had been done to me in the past, you know, I, I, I feel like even more victimized than I did when I, man, it's just, uh, I, even when I'm saying it right now, it's really hard for me to process. It's really hard for me to admit. And it's really hard for me to even, even say, but the fact that this style of rape is so normalized and so casual and, and joked about is it's disgusting. And then these people, they go around claiming uh, that they were raped falsely, frequently. This is something that they do all the time. I mean, even on that Bachelor in Par uh, Paradise situation, it just ended with another cast member saying, oh, yeah, that lady that accused that guy of, of sexually assaulting her, they, they should hook up. They should be back on the show, and they should work their romance out. They called a fake rape accusation romance. So these people... These racists, they, they have turned rape into procedure. They've turned rape into jokes. And they've turned rape into a game. And it's a TV show. So anytime you hear them talking all this noise about how, uh, how some victim of racism is a rapist and how you should take their word just for the sake of it, you know, you should think back to your history and perhaps you've been victimized as well. And more so than any of these people claiming to have been. And it's, it's just disgusting. I can't even think about it. I'm sorry. I'll mute my line. I uh, am sorry to hear that, Mr. Steele. That, uh, wow, to, to share, to have said that frequently under the system of white supremacy, all of us, we've been subjected to such just extraordinary amounts of, of terrorism and savagery uh, and you know discussing some of these things publicly is extremely difficult and painful uh, even thinking about it much less talking about it publicly but um, I definitely I appreciate and uh, acknowledge the courage it takes to speak about that publicly and uh, Dr. Curry uh, he has a whole section in his book uh, I just read that chapter uh, in his book The Man Not talking about black males being victims of sexual violence how that's uh, a one of the central facets uh, one of the central ways that white supremacy operates uh, racist man and racist woman uh, sexually abusing black males frequently enforcement officials he talks about that in detail in the book and how there's often very little regard uh, sympathy uh, for black male victims of sexual violence uh, other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up that we've not heard from uh, if you had commentary feel free Reckon some of the other folks, they might still be uh, needing time or getting their thoughts together, what have you. Uh, some of the other commentary I wanted to make sure I got in. I did not have an audio clip on the Grenfell Tower situation. We had uh, Esther Stanford Cosse on the program on Monday, live from London. It was great to have her back on the program. It had been a couple years since she had uh, spoken with us, but she gave uh, excellent analysis of the situation. I think they the death toll is at 79, I think. Uh, and there's still the official quote-unquote death toll is at 79, and uh, folks have uh, made a number of accusations in saying that they think a lot of uh, dastardly, deceptive things are happening with what's being reported. But then they went around and said that they did 
fire checks on a number of the high-rise buildings in London and found that uh, I think it was more than a dozen of the buildings failed the test. So they evacuated like, I think like 4,000 people <laughs> as a result of these tests. It was amazing. I had to do a double take to see if that was, you know, what I had really seen. And it was, you know, 4,000 people uh, evacuated because they went around and tested these buildings and many of them were not safe. So that is amazing. Uh, and I just didn't, I couldn't play everything, but that did happen. I did think that that was noteworthy. I'm not sure if the people that were evacuated, if they you know, ended up uh, removing a lot of non-white people were dislocated as a result of these unsafe uh, conditions. Uh, Lorraine, uh, she wrote me about that as well. Lorraine, she's one of our uh, black listeners in the UK. She messaged me about this this morning. She said that she thought, I guess she and some of her friends, when they were talking about the uh, Grenfell situation last week, she said that they thought this was just going to be pretense to toss a whole lot of black people uh, out of residential areas. And uh, some of the reports I saw, it did look like white people. I'm just not sure if it was a disproportionate number of non-white British residents uh, who got the boot as a result of these fire checks. But that was very important incident that happened this week as well. Uh, any of the other folks that dialed in with the hand up that we haven't heard from yet have, have commentary or folks still spectating? Seems they are still spectating. Right on. Uh, the folks that uh, have a hand up, I reckon you can speak up. The people that do have hands up that we've not heard from, you can speak up when... You are prepared if you're waiting to get to an area where you can uh, speak or whatever the issue is. Uh, the rest of the folks, uh, the caller at 7720, if you had commentary, did you want to speak? Uh, good evening, Gus. Good evening, callers. This is um, The Voice from Florida. Um, just a couple of quick things real quick. Um, I found it very interesting about the Google search that they were talking about earlier. Um, and they named uh, the white nationalist um, website called Stormfront. I've been hearing that going around a lot. It seems like this is like the spawn hub of all like white supremacist um, individuals that's, that's been going out here doing attacks. So, um, when they said that, it just made me realize, like, how important um, the work that you do here, Gus, with the cows, how it's very important um, that we do have a forum where we talk about stuff and prepare ourselves against these attacks, just like they have forums that they promote a lot of violence. So um, I really wanted to give you kudos for that, um, for really placing a great platform, especially with our UK listeners um, globally and more listeners that's joining in from other um, countries, continents. Um, it's, it's just very great that we can be unified because it seems like we're just being attacked from all corners. And if you don't have an outlet to voice your concerns or to find information on how you can you know, protect yourself and be codified in a manner where you are at least trying to live as safe as possible during these rough times. Um, also, there was a clip talking about how they, um, the officers were barricading the people in 
And I remember when um, I fell away from UK and also the clips that they were playing about how um, with the Grenfell Towers, like people were trying to escape, but the cops were telling them to stay in and barricading them in. So that kind of like gave like a flashback of like, I don't know if this is like normal procedure that cops are doing. Like they don't have any concern for safety. It's all about, you know, what they feel in their heads and it's going against code. So uh, I don't know. That was kind of that was kind of weird when I when I heard that. Um, the cow, uh, Josiah Stalin, um, that clip was very interesting because they, it's like they were talking in a, in a way where they were codified with each other. And it just, you know, it was like he was asking them questions and the other guy was responding in a way like he was promoting for this guy Kyle to, to like escape the murder, because they kept emphasizing about, oh, is it possible that a double jeopardy could be nullified and, uh, you know, he won't be tried twice? And he's like, yeah, you know, um, if it goes to trial, then, yeah, he can't be tried, um, he can't, you know, be tried twice for double jeopardy. So it's like, in every incident, they're always trying to find that loophole to get out of, um, you know, being convicted for and um, really being held responsible for murdering um, black people. And it's just, uh, I enjoyed that clip because it just showed how codified they are in their languages. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the, um, the, the London attacks on um, the Muslims. And it seems like... Um, you know, they're getting very aggressive over there in London with the Muslims as well as, you know, the same here in the U.S. And um, Muslims uh, really is just a cold word for blacks. And I, um, I know you guys don't talk about watching, you know, shows or anything like that, but I've been watching this show called um, Orange is the New Black. And it takes place about women in prison. And in this season, this new season that just aired, I think, like last month, um, there's a scene where there's um, two white girls who's holding a, another white lady up, um, posing as um, Jesus because they have a strap to a board and they're on top of a roof. They just took over the prison. They held the guards hostage. But the two white ladies that's on top, they have on a Muslim attire, the headpiece, the head garments, and the news reports back, because the news chopper was above them, the news reports back that, oh, the Muslims took over the prison, you know, and they, they really didn't analyze that it was two white women that had on these attires. So it just goes to show you that even in the narratives in these shows are depicting, like, blacks as being Muslims and they, they, you know, it's just this whole Muslim black narrative that they're dangerous. So I just see all the propaganda being very dangerous towards black people now. So it isn't about Muslims. I think the narrative shifts more to just black people. And that's pretty much all I have to say. And I'll just move my life. Appreciate that. Yeah, that, to the, the at least the photographs that I've seen of the victim in Virginia, the young uh, lady that was killed, um, 
she looked like a black female uh, to me. Most of the reports that I've seen, they emphasize that she was Muslim. Nothing. I mean, she was Muslim, unless I've been misinformed. Nothing incorrect about them sharing that. But most of the reports that I've seen, they have not mentioned or said, yeah, this was a black female, a Muslim black female uh, who was uh, killed. Um, I definitely think that's important to keep that uh, keep that in mind in processing all of the information. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from uh, at all, if you had a hand up, uh, line should be open. Feel free. Oh, while they're waiting on the police barricade issue, uh, before I forget, yeah, that was uh, Desmond Cole. He was talking about in uh, Canada where they were, I guess, barricading the door to keep the people who were going to criticize having enforcement officials in the public schools in Canada, Toronto specifically, they were barricading the door to keep the undesirables out so that they could control who was going to be able to speak uh, so they could reduce the number of people who would uh, admonish or criticize speak against police being in the schools Uh, with the London situation. They were blocking people from exiting. We talked about that with Esther Stanford Cosay and with our uh, listeners in London as well. Uh, apparently, that's the fire code that they operate by to not have people get congested in the fire escapes and stairwells and that sort of thing and cause more problems if they think they have the fire under control uh, to keep everybody back. But I mean, flagrantly, obviously, in this situation, they did not have the fire uh, under control. Uh, And I mean, for I mean, you've got dozens of casualties minimum uh, and some people alleging suspecting that it's way more in the hundreds. But uh, yeah, just in my situation, that is appalling that there are many reports that apparently that was uh, that was what was uh, that was what was done in the Grenfell situation. Uh, were there other folks who had uh, commentary? Other folks who had a hand up who had uh, matters they wanted to discuss? Uh, can I be heard? Uh, hang on one second, Mr. Steele. Retired firefighter, did you have commentary? Oh, yes. Uh, I... Uh, uh, mentioned about uh with the fire uh, uh that in 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 England uh the United Kingdom uh that uh there seemed to be some sort of accelerant uh it it was an accelerant it wasn't liquid it was uh some sort of uh item uh some kind of fiber that's on a panel uh that uh and I can see it easily uh, lighting that building up like it did because that's that that's that is very unusual. Uh, I've been to plenty of high-rise fires and that sort of thing. It's normally is isolated, uh, sometimes deadly to the uh, to uh, some people that stay in the place, but it doesn't captivate the entire building like that did. And uh, now that I see, but and and but that that is systematic of where non-white people are forced to stay, because the people who are building these places or have refused to make alterations based on safety don't care, you know, as far as when uh, non-white people uh, are in these type of facilities. Uh, they don't be in a hurry to change the the the, uh, 
the uh, the the uh, the dangerous conditions, anything like that, and uh, it becomes a situation where it's just a matter of time. That's why the people were able to predict what was going to happen. I noticed also with the interviews, uh, with with me anyway, with the interviews, they 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 make it their business. The press, the the, the white controlled press, make it their business to interview white people. But because there are so many non-white people, when the, when the camera pans over the people in the area, it's a lot of non-white people that you see. Uh, uh, and I'm aware that, uh, you know, from all of the places where England used to, as they made a joke about it, was so vast that the sun never set on it. Well, those people now have, have uh, because their areas, areas where they're from, have been messed up so bad, they uh, have came to England to settle, you know, to try to settle uh, in somewhere that is uh, a lot more better than where their uh, their origins are at. And that's what you see in this in these pan panoramic panoramic views of uh, the people that's in the area, uh, as opposed to the people that they're actually interviewing. They all look white. The ones that I that of the news reports that I saw, and uh, that's all I have to say for right now. Mm, I've I've observed the same thing where they might interview someone who looks like they'd be classified, accepted as white, but it's a whole lot of melanated people uh, in the background. That's been my observation uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, just one quick thing I wanted to get in before I get the uh, other caller: uh, if you can make people thousands of people. Come in and tell them, hey, uh, you all got 24 hours to be out of here. Uh, whatever the reason we're going to give. It's a fire fire code violation. You got 24 hours to be out and enforce that and make that happen. Even if it's white people, you got 24 hours to be out of here. No ifs, no ands, no buts. It's no one else to speak to about the matter. That's what it is. Be out. Uh, and if you you know don't comply, we'll have uh, enforcement officials here to you know shove you out. That is white power. And I'm not aware of black people anywhere on the planet having that authority over white people where they can go and get thousands of white people and tell them in the next 24 hours you are going to do thus and so or else or we're going to make you do it thousands of you all right now if we want to white power very important i thought uh the person that dialed in three two four six uh did you have commentary three two four six yes sir can i be heard yes sir Yes, sir. Greetings to you, the host, the callers, and the listeners. This is Amhandasi. I wanted to call about um, one of the clips that I heard was about police officers inside of schools. And I was just going to say I had a run-in with a police officer inside of a high school that I went to. Um, he was an undercover police officer, so he was a plain clothes officer so i i I didn't know uh, who the guy was but um just to give an example of them terrorizing these people that we call white um terrorizing black people inside of these schools i was just walking down the hallway uh during lunchtime um trying to you know going to go get something to eat i'm walking with a, a associate of mine and then one of the security guards um 
was walking really fast um, behind me and came and knocked, you know, just bumped into me and kept walking. I made a comment to the guy that I was standing beside that, you know, if we were um, in a different location other than the school, I wouldn't have let that slide. And then some guy directly behind me overheard what I said, and I didn't even see this guy, but this was the plainclothes police officer. And then he came and uh, and asked me what I said. He came in front of me and asked me what I said. I didn't respond to him. I just tried to keep on, you know, going where I was going. And he stood directly in my face and asked me the question again. And I told him to get out of my way. Um, but he ended up, started shaking me, um, uh, twirled me around, um, and threw me against the ground. Uh, the security guard who had bumped into me before was far ahead of me, but he came running uh, towards me dropped his knee into my back, and then they handcuffed me in school. And, um, you know, it was a, a big ordeal for me to be handcuffed inside of school. And then by a, a plainclothes officer, I didn't know who this guy was. But anyway, it's just an example of these uh, people we're calling white that are terrorizing black people inside of schools. Um, but the other thing I was wanting to say was, uh, we do defeat these people that we call white. And I was going to say, um, a lot of times we are able to work out things that we're able to work out equations or problems that we weren't able to work out while we're awake. We're able to work them out while we're asleep. Um, and perhaps we'll have dreams of how we defeated these people, but we really need to know how we defeated these people. So it, whether we work it out while we're awake or whether we work it out while we're asleep, if it is that we work it out while we're asleep, just make sure, you know, that you keep your mind as clear as possible. Try to eat healthy. And uh, it seems to be in the early mornings when you can remember your dreams, you know. So if, if you're able to figure out how we defeat these people, we really need to know how to do this. We do defeat these people, but we really need to know very soon how we defeat these people, how we do it in this generation, how we do it in the shortest time possible. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, just as been said before, I'm sure there are a whole lot of black people, unfortunately, who can relate to the trauma that you experienced uh, in school. I mean, just imagine that. Uh, and then they have the audacity to come around and, you know, question why black people have difficulties uh, in school when you're facing that sort of terrorism uh, from K all the way through, you know, 12th grade and, and beyond. Uh, the person who dialed in, uh, I think this might be Jay, if I'm doing a little bit better with my numbers. Uh, is this Jay in New York? Uh, greetings, Gus. Uh, can you, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Great, great. Thanks. Um, I just had to pull off of the highway. I don't have a headpiece. Um, I didn't want one of the uh, race soldiers kind of pull me over and start uh, situations uh, because they see me on the phone. So I'm at a rest stop now. Um, I missed the um, earlier clips. Um, I was working in the New York City area today. Um, 
but I just wanted to kind of add in in reference to um, a lot of the activities. I, again, I missed the clip, but I'm not sure if the um, Philando Castillo case was uh, one of the clips. Um, before I do that, I wanted to thank, um, I think it was Red out of Ohio in reference to that great counter-racist um, research that she did in reference to the Ohio bodies. Um, I, I jumped on just in time to hear that, so I wanted to thank her for that research. Um, I will do some additional research on that as well. Um, one of the things that I've, I've done myself, and I may have talked about this on another broadcast, is um, I've purposefully stayed away from watching these videos. Um, I think there was a second video that came out um, this week in reference to that, and a whole bunch of people were talking about it and sharing it, and um, and and I say being traumatized by it again. Um, and one thing that I've noticed in the major cities, um, they are strategically placing a lot of um, police vehicles, um, race soldier vehicles that continually have their lights on. Um, and, and, and again, I, I think it's just a mental, because when I'm in the areas that are more heavily populated with melanated people, um, they're just three or four of these vehicles, every three or fourth block um, with their lights just on. I mean, they're not, there's nobody pulled over. They're just parked on the side and the lights are on. Um, and then I'm also starting to see that these vehicles are also just kind of flying down the roadways with their lights and the, the base horns blaring. Um, and I think from my perspective, and I don't watch a lot of the media, so my vibration is kind of kept outside of being traumatized by that. Uh, but I could definitely see how that is an effort to kind of really just keep everybody on this hyper low frequency, low vibration um, and, and traumatized by the situation. Uh, I heard about your situation, Gus, and um, again, just kind of a day in the life, unfortunately. And um, even being in the New York City area today for these meetings, I was in the West Village. Um, and to see just the, <laughs> I guess I would call it rainbow pride that's, uh, that's so prevalent, this uh, anti-sexual uh, um, activity that's just so prevalent and, and just all over the place. And, and I thought to myself, if I had a red, black, and green shirt on, I probably would have gotten tackled. I mean, that's how out of place I felt just walking through the area because everything just felt so outside of of myself and um felt that's kind of trauma in an, in and of itself just kind of being in an environment where all of that is so welcoming it's it's just so open so present um and in your face um to the point where you have to accept it um or you're kind of crazy or something um but um that's really interesting and, and i think from the week of uh, all the activity and and and, and the mom that had her situation i know there was a tape and there was again you know this um continual just bombardment um and i and i looked at the video from the um the fire um that death trap that i call it a death trap because when i looked at that and i think the firefighter just mentioned it um that there was some type of an accelerant 
Um, I lost two friends in the um, 9-11 um, situation, and I was working in New York at the time, and I saw the, the whole fire start, and I was only about two miles away from the incident. Um, and those incidents kind of hold this trap in your mind. And, and when I saw that building go up, um, it just reminded me of, of 9-11. And, and we've all heard of all the theories that they've come out with now in 9-11 that it had to be some type of accelerant, no way that the planes did that. And I felt the same way uh, when I saw that building um, go up um, last week. And um, it all just kind of points to what everybody's saying, that this this is just accelerating uh, to the next level. Um, I guess my frustration right now, and I thank you for saying it every week, Gus, to, to have patience, uh, you know, with other melanated people, but uh, to see folks who are in the streets, and um, I was trying my best to get out of the city as quickly as I could because the partying started ramping up, and it just seems like nobody is seeing what's going on. This is my first time being out at night um, in a long time, and uh, it just seems like nobody or a majority of the melanated people that I'm coming across just either don't care um, or just are not looking at it the same way. Um, and um, I listen to the old podcast and uh, Neely Fuller's shows while I'm driving and the looks that I get, and I don't blast it at all. I kind of listen to it just so that I could hear it, but my windows are down and the looks that I get because I'm not doing as, Mr. Neely Fuller says, like, show-offism, blast of music, that I'm listening to something that's kind of, like, constructive. The, the racist, the suspected racist, are, like, ear-hustling so close into what's going on in my vehicle. And I'm pretty sure they hear some things at, at points when I'm stopped at light. But um, I'd rather my show-offism be in that regard than anything else that I've seen throughout the day-to-day. -day. But... Um, Continued terror um, is, is kind of how I put um, put it after a day like today and a week like this week. But um, sorry, I missed the clips. I'll have to go back and to uh, listen to it later on tonight or tomorrow. And Gus, I did want to add the clicks. Um, I've actually been hearing the clicks for like the last couple of weeks when I've tried to log on while I was at work before I was able to join on the call. Uh, but the clicks have been there for uh, a little while. Um, I'm sorry I didn't email a little bit earlier about that. But that's all I had. Thanks for taking the time. No apology needed. Thank you, Connelly, for letting me know now. Hopefully we'll uh, have it permanently resolved. Uh, other folks uh, had commented. Did we miss uh, anybody? I thought we got all the folks who died in with a hand up. Did we miss anybody? Anybody who has a hand up that we've not heard from at all? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. I thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. Uh, real, really quick, Gus, I wanted to ask what was that? Because there was a few things I picked up from the audio segment. I think they, like they used the metaphor, uh, boil, cry, wolf. I guess it was some kind of uh, uh, maybe school incident. I guess they were trying to teach something or whatever. And they use that metaphor about the boiled cry wolf. Did you remember which audio segment that came from? 
Absolutely, uh, and that's that was an important one. Uh, that was the University of Albany incident. If folks remember the three black female students at the beginning of 2016, uh, where they were on that city bus and they reported that uh, it was a bunch of drunken, much like the incident at Arcadia, uh, there were a bunch of drunken whites on the bus. And they were harassing them and calling them racist names and things. And they ended up being physically assaulted and they fought back. And the black female students ended up getting charged. Uh, the two of them, they had their uh, sentencing this week and they were not sentenced to jail time. They just got probation and uh, community service. But the judge in the sentencing, uh, he lambasted them and, and said that they were like the boy who cried wolf. Uh, when uh, and, and that was the clip where they opened it saying that these were convicted liars. Uh, and then they went on to have the, the judge said that they were like the, the boy who cried wolf. But that was the clip. And another thing that's interesting about that is uh, is how Mr. Fuller talks about the the degenerization. So, he, you know, they're, they're uh, female. So, he, you know, he says the boy who cried wolf and, you know, like black people are called animals. And you know, since they you can't become a woman, you can either be a remain a girl or turn into a boy. I, I know like I know that's not like how he actually said it, but I guess you know he was with that metaphor. He could be a trying to um, like make them masculine or something like that. And like how you have so many metaphors that are influenced by racism. You know, the wolf having darker fur. Um, "Quote unquote wolf in sheep's clothing, and the sheep having uh, more white fur, I guess. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting when they use that, and they use the language saying that the judge lectured to them, like that, like using that kind of language really made it seem as though she that they don't really understand what they're doing, and I'm going to look down on you, your minors, your children. You know, I have to tell you what the truth is." And I, I think there was somebody else saying that, well, you know, this, we looked at the video and things that you said really weren't happening. And my thing about that evidence about the video, I don't even think they showed it all in context. They seem to have uh, turned on the footage at a certain time and they didn't get the audio in it. So I think they were very deceitful in that case. Um, as far as I think it was, uh, I looked at, it was another story about a young girl. I can't remember what school she went to. Um, she was still, like, it was still was talking about it being bullying. They didn't really mention anything about racism. But she was uh, holding up, I guess, like, cards. And she wasn't really speaking in the video. And she said she was called uh, Nutella. And I think that's some type of a food product where I guess you spread on crackers or bread or something. And it's some type of chocolate, I, I think. Um, you know, and she was basically mistreated because she's uh, not white. She's a black child. And uh, there was one other thing that I remember from the audio segment. Seeing that it drops, left my mind. Uh, if I could come back later and speak on it, I'll just do that and I'll just pass it on to the next person. Uh, thank you. For sure, happens to the best of us. Uh, that that piece about uh, Nutella, delectable Negro. Once again, uh, white people love Nutella. <laughs> you can highlight, underline, boldface print. White people love 
Nutella. Like I've seen reports where uh, like at some of the uh, historically white institutions like Cornell, that's in uh, upstate New York, uh, where white people were eating so much, white, the white students, they were eating so much Nutella uh, that they were having a difficult time keeping it stocked uh, in the dining halls. Uh, I mean, this is like, oh man, just absolutely. And it's, it's like a uh, chocolate. It's it's really, really dark, uh, really sweet, but really dark, sweet. So for them to be calling this student, this black student calling her Nutella right on delectable Negro at the same time that I'm terrorizing you and abusing you verbally, violently attacking you. I'm still using terms that convey mm, I'm, I'm just hoping have a fetish to devour and totally consume that melanated flesh. Uh, that is that delectable Negro. Like I said, that, uh, Perhaps it should be on the top 10 book list. It is not, but maybe it should be. Delectable Negro, Vincent Woodard, and cannot wait to speak with Dr. Curry about that this coming week. Anybody that we missed uh, completely, anybody had a hand up uh, that we've not heard from at all? Uh, we have less than 30 minutes left uh, in the program, maybe about 20 minutes. Anybody we missed completely? Uh, hello? Yes, sir. Oh, hey. I'll be very brief. I'm just going to uh, go back on something I brought up last week and it just goes to show what I've been saying and what all of us have been saying about selective usage of words. Wednesday, June 21st, FBI officials gave a press conference on the uh, race soldier James Hodgkinson who shot five people at a GOP baseball game, most notably Congressman Steve Scalise. Anyway, the FBI spoke of a hit list that this man had. They laid out all the evidence that he had as well as talked about his political views, how this was the emphasis of this. However, they did not call him a terrorist. They declared that this was not terrorism, that this was instead an assault. Now, what made this so good was three hours, three to four hours later, a Muslim man walks up to a cop in the airport, says, Allah Akbar, stabs him in the neck. Immediately, FBI officials say, that's terrorism. But the white guy who capped five people for political reasons, a whole press conference to explain why that wasn't terrorism. And then the people who call themselves Republicans, who are supposedly the aggrieved party, some of them were upset that this wasn't called terrorism. Days later, after no quote-unquote big Republican, whether it was President Trump, Speaker Ryan, Speaker uh, Majority Leader McConnell, VP Pence, none of them called this terrorism. Oh, like they are so quick to uh, do the Ariana Grande concert attack. 
you know, Charlie Hebdo, all of this stuff. So, again, just 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 goes to confirm what what I've been saying and all of us have been saying for years. And you just could not have seen it better displayed than Wednesday within a four-hour time period. That's all I have to say. Great lifetime comparison contrast. Uh, even white people attacking other white people, not labeled as an act of terrorism. Very important. I don't. I don't know. If people. I guess you all can share if you've seen with the Virginia situation where the uh, young non-white Muslim female, where she was uh, beaten to death, killed in Virginia. Has that been in the reports that you all have seen? Has that been labeled an act of terrorism? Maybe people haven't. People know which uh, situation I'm talking about. Been... Oh yes. Oh, I can quickly say that uh, this this has been labeled act of terrorism simply because it's two fetishes for the hate mongers to to deal with. Because the guy is a suspected illegal alien. So basically, it's like, uh, who who do you hate the most, and who do you want to, uh, and who do you want to give some sort of respect to? And in this case, in my opinion, it's neither. I, did... um, I want to agree. Oh, go ahead. Red. I'm no, sorry. I... Go ahead. Um, I I just wanted to agree with M1. I haven't heard of it being called a terrorist attack. And then also I, um, they, I have heard reports where they did mention that after he beat her to death, he um, drug her body or disposed of her body in a lake, if I'm not mistaken. So it was um, several different crime scenes. But I, I definitely agree with what M1 said. Nothing, even not even wanting to, um, like they said in the report, not even wanting to call it a, um, a hate, um, a hate crime because it's between, as they basically said to minority groups, whatever. And also it's supposed to be a, uh, um, a, a road rage incident. But I, I saw one, um, news clip where the father was speaking. He was like, how could it have been a road rage incident? There's, it, it just it just didn't make sense to him. Um, thank you. I'll mute my line. Hmm. Anybody else want to respond to that about uh, <clears throat> the uh, Nabra Hassanin? Uh, has that incident been described as an act of terrorism, which you all have seen about that? And for the record, the suspected killer, uh, Darwin Martinez Torres, they've said he's in the country illegally. I suspect that he could be someone who's classified, accepted as white. This is what I mean about that whole Hispanic thing. Yeah, he could be here illegally. I don't know where he was born, but I suspect that this is somebody who could be classified, accepted as white. Uh, I guess folks can share their thoughts on that too. People who have seen a photograph or photographs video uh, of the suspect, uh, people think he's white, non-white. Folks want to respond to that as well. I agree. He does look like a quote-unquote white Hispanic, if you can even, or someone who could be classified as white. I did see he was definitely very, um, 
he had whiter looking skin, almost like he almost to me he kind of looked like he could have been like Italian, dark hair, dark, somewhat dark like eyebrows and everything. But it's not like he had more of like a indigenous person, Latino, Hispanic, quote unquote features. Thank you. This is Jay. I I agree. Um, I, I would say the same. I only saw one photo and. The article I read on it also didn't mention anything about uh, terrorists. Um, I would probably say the same for the uh, murderer of uh, Philando Castillo. I probably would coin him in the same, probably classified as white, but um, you know, just has that name um, to throw people off. But that's my commentary. I'll mute my line. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, Go ahead. I agree as well. This is a voice from 305. Uh, I agree as well. Um, if you look at the, they released the, um, the tapes of the dash cam, and even if you look at his mannerism, his mannerism is just like a race soldier, like a typical white aggressive male, where he's, you know, as soon as he approaches Philando, he already is in that white supremacist mode, the demeanor, the talk, everything, how he interacts with him. So, yeah, I just feel like it's just another, he's just another white male that, you know, white soldier. I mean, well. Is that what they mentioned, the term road rage? It was uh, whether with the Nebra Hassanen case, whether they've been calling that an act of terrorism, uh, her uh, her being killed, is that an act of terrorism? Have you seen that word being used? And then... Uh, her killer do the if you've seen photos or video of her suspected killer uh do you suspect that he's white or not white okay i w- i will have to because um, i hadn't seen the the image of the the person who did the crime is the victim is she classified as uh non white or black or I don't know what is. Uh, I haven't heard definitively someone say his name again is Darwin Martinez Torres. I haven't heard anyone say definitively what his racial classification is. I have heard people say, and I think others as well have said that they've uh, seen reports that have said that he's in the country illegally. But I don't know in terms of what his uh, racial classification is. Um, yeah, that's why I was asking you all. Oh, okay, I, w- I would just say uh, to the earlier point where the gentleman was mentioning about um, what terms they use, I think that'll be an indicator of uh, possibly whether or not the person who uh, did the crime was or is uh, accepted as white. Like, I'm not sure how they might portray it in the article or whatever way that they reported it, but I think it could be a, or an attempt to uh, have non-white people in a conflict uh, with each other um, because, you know, I know how they reported in the news about how uh, Donald Trump helps. Well, not really just Donald Trump, but really the system. They put those key terms out there, uh, illegal and terrorist and, uh, you know, illegal immigration. And a lot of uh, victims are confused out there and they end up taking you know, a lot of their frustrations out on each other. So that it could be one of those kind of incidents 
and you do have people who are uh, accepted as white, and you know they might be, you know, portrayed as non-white one second and another second that they're, they're white. So definitely, it's a lot of confusion. So that, that's all I have on that. Confusion. They have a picture of him on the CNN article. I posted on. I put it on the Facebook page so that people haven't seen uh, Darwin Martinez Torres. If you want to see what he looks like, so you can come to your own conclusion. Uh, I'll post it right now. Anybody else? We missed anybody who wanted to respond on this one. Racial classification uh, of the suspected killer, or the word terrorism used in this case. Or if we only got about ten minutes left, so I think Mr. Steele had said he had comments. Anybody else have comments? They want to make sure they get in last ten minutes. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Awesome. Um, regarding that, uh, the fire in uh, the building in the UK. Um, I was in a high-rise fire, and it killed one of my neighbors, uh, uh, a victim of racism. Uh, Her name was uh, Chantel. And, uh, yeah, those uh, those high-rise fires are are, are really – if you live in an older high-rise, you are at a tremendous amount of risk um, of those high-rise fires. Uh, oftentimes in these high-rise buildings, regardless if uh, there are uh, victims living in the building or if there are um, suspected racists uh, making up the majority population in the building, oftentimes the owners and the property managers of these buildings uh, will go to great lengths to avoid having to update the systems. In the fire that was in my apartment uh, or that was in my apartment building, um, it was found that uh, the owners of the building had extended uh, the deadline for uh, them to comply with um, building regulations uh, two weeks prior to the fire taking place. So, uh, you know, in an effort to save a few coins, these uh, racist white supremacists will put even uh, even their uh, most moneyed uh, members at risk um, because the building that I was in was it was definitely not uh, um, was definitely not populated with uh, um, financially disadvantaged people. So uh, there's that, and then also um, you know regarding uh, the regarding the um, traumatic um, videos that are being shared uh, all over. Uh, Facebook and the internet. Um, you know, I too have uh, simply just opted out of um, viewing uh, those videos. I think that um, they are um, part of a very sophisticated psychological um, operation that these racists are are running on everyone. And I too have noticed that in areas um, heavily populated. Uh, by victims of racism that uh, police officers will just park uh, their cars and they will leave their lights on. And I, I sincerely think that that is a part of uh, this very grand psychological operation that they are running um, on us victims. So uh, just, you know, I stay away from regular TV. Um, I stay away from TV and I stay away from all of these um, videos of 
advertising. And also, thank you for um, listening um, earlier. Uh, I know that I wasn't uh, sounding as um, concise and as sharp as I normally am, but uh, yeah, that situation it just um, it gets me very upset when I think about it. Uh, thank you so much. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, this is right again from Ohio. I just wanted to add on one thing um, about the, the information that I shared earlier. Uh, the last thing, it actually would have been more, uh, it would have related to uh, Jay from New York's question. What I was able to find out, and this is like somewhat old information, um, in 2015 in Summit County, which is in Ohio, um, which of course is a mostly white county, um, they said that they had to use a temporary morgue because of how many overdose cases. So um, I can only assume because another in one of the other articles, they said that um, the coroner offices in the different counties, they do email each other. They actually basically give each other warnings, um, which is essentially what I got from the article, um, that if they have, if one county has a, a increase of overdose cases, then they'll email another county, uh, another coroner's office and say, hey, I have a whole bunch and hey, you might want to prepare yourself basically. So I'm assuming if Summit County, which is, um, I would say, uh, a medium-sized county in Ohio, if they had to use a temporary morgue, I wouldn't be surprised if um, some of the larger con uh, counties are doing that as well. Thank you for allowing me to share it again. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I want to add on with the um, young females from Albany. Um, one of the things, and we may have spoken about this in one of the shows, or I may have seen it in a video. Um, I think they were already kind of pretty much put in probably the worst situation that they could be put in because their names were sprawled all over the media. Um, and I know if they're going to be going out for jobs in any of these companies, these racist white supremacist soldiers in these companies probably already have them tagged. Um, and they probably will not be able to find substantial employment um, as they're looking for jobs, as they go on throughout their careers, whatever they choose to do. Um, I did receive some information that they are now starting to hire individuals that they classify as digital footprint analysts. Um, at some of the companies like Google um, and some of the larger tech companies. Uh, but this is a trend, um, and these digital footprint analysts will be people that will scrub the Internet all over. Um, deleted photos, uh, photos from deleted accounts like Instagram, Facebook, um, for individuals that are being hired into companies. And these decisions will kind of either preclude people from being hired or kind of advance individuals based upon the information that they find. Um, so if anyone is looking to go into an area um, in the tech field, um, I'm hearing that these positions are paying a lot of money um, and they're becoming very, very popular really quickly out in the industry. So there's digital footprint analysts. Um, I just wanted to kind of make a mention of that and then definitely start to hear about uh, what's going on with these uh, young people because um, I know their road is going to be uh, pretty terroristic um, as they move on uh, through the cycle. And, and for Mr. Steele, I did want to add in reference to the information that you gathered from your doctor, 
and we could definitely talk about this offline. Um, you should definitely get a record of the blood pressure um, that spiked due to the situations if you're looking to do anything legally, um, you know, with the situation that you had with that employer past or present. So I just wanted to make sure I added that. I didn't have any, um, I couldn't take down notes. So I'm just trying to go off the top of my head right now. Um, I'll meet my line. All, all, already ahead of you, definitely. And, and thanks for Great, that. great, great. Last few minutes before we conclude, or folks satisfied? Anything else folks want to get in? Last few minutes. Can I be yes, sir. Yeah, I just wanted to add in real quick. Uh, I was watching, um, I was listening to uh, an audio clip on The Breakfast Club with Dr. Wesley Muhammad, and just in the reference of what uh, Jay from New York and Ken Steele was saying about how they don't watch um, this killings, the repeating killings that they see on TV. Um, Dr. Wesley Muhammad, he talked about that, how when they, uh, the news keeps playing these killings over and over of black people being shot, shot down, it actually rises the testosterone in the victor, which is normally the white race soldier. So when they see that, a lot of white, their testosterone rises. And as blacks, when we view that, our testosterone declines because, you know, we, when you're in a losing position, your whole morale and everything goes down. So I think that was a very, very interesting, very interesting interview. So if you ever um, wanted to, you know, take the time to go and, and um, just hear what he had to say real deep on The Breakfast Club, um, Dr. Wesley Muhammad, that's all I had to say. Yeah, we talked about that. I don't watch uh, the videos. I haven't. I didn't watch the first uh, Falando Castillo video from uh, last summer, and I didn't watch the one that they released after they decided they were not going to convict his uh, killer. So, yeah, and for a lot of the same reasons you all have uh, articulated, black self-respect is very important. I'm not saying to ignore uh, the, the Falando Castillo case or any of the other uh, police shooting cases. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I don't think you need. I don't think it's healthy. Uh, to just continue to consume all that content and share all of that. Uh, I think that has a, a very uh, traumatic uh, and deliberate negative impact uh, on black people's health. Uh, anything else folks want to get in before we uh, wrap things up? You guys, can I be heard? Yes, sir. I just, I just wanted to point out real quick, there was a, a segment where they were talking about the Google searches and it like the language the guy was using, he said that uh, he said people were uh, putting in Obama and nigger. I think he like he didn't specify whether or not they were white. Did he? I don't think he said they were white. Did he? And he said people were going to people were going to uh, stormfront. Like you know what people did you did you catch that too? Absolutely. He said at one point he said Americans. Uh, where he he just said that they were the ones that were engaged in these behaviors, but absolutely he did not indict whites specifically as the ones who were looking. Even when the racist jokes came up, he said about specifically looking for racist jokes about African Americans. Even then, he didn't say it was white people who were looking for these racist jokes. Absolutely, I thought that was really important too. Anything else folks uh, needed to get in or folks satisfied? Anything else? 
I will assume folks are good. Uh, we will be back, as I said, on Tuesday. Dr. Tommy Curry uh, will be looking forward to discussing his new book, uh, The Man Knot, Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, if you are confused, can't find something in the archives, have a guest suggestion, uh, general gripe or complaint about the program, until justice at gmail.com, until justice at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into the broadcast. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Remain safe and codified. I know it's warm and great. Get outside. Have a great time. Frolic. Get that vitamin D. But remain codified. Racists, they do not pause just because the sun is shining. Uh, And to that note, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, Being out and about, we talked about all these different situations. Uh, Philanda Castile or... Miss Lyles right here in Seattle, Washington. I don't think being intoxicated is going to make any of those situations easier to navigate. Uh, I don't think any of those situations would have been better uh, if Miss Lyles had had a few beers and then had the misfortune of calling Seattle's finest. Sobriety would be best. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you're a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.